Welcome to Talking Heads, everybody, episode 141, your once-weekly live show for the latest in beer and tech news. I'm Jeff. And I'm Tom Lawrence. Welcome to the show, Tom. How's it going, buddy? It is. It is going well. It is a little bit later here in Detroit than where you are, but, um, you know, it's all right. I, I'm, a, I'm a night owl, so it's all right. <laughs> uh, what can I say? West Coast, best coast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, uh, wherever you are out in, uh, in Chatland tonight. Uh, if you've never seen the show before, Tom is, uh, is a guest star. We're uh, bringing him on. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different than our normal thing. We are going to get into some news points today. And boy, were there some news stories that uh, actually kind of fall squarely into your realm of things today, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> we have a uh, yeah, it's one of the only days I've ever went... Boy, I'm really glad I'm not verified on Twitter. Boy, what a mess that is. So we, uh, I, I have the appropriately sized bottle of whiskey for the friends on Twitter. Like the poor security engineers there. Man. Oh, man. They're not having a good day. Yeah, between, uh, boy, Twitter and their security staff and Outlook and, well, the Outlook staff as a whole, I'll say, or at least their patch, their patch people. Oh, I know. It's just... So the uh, the Outlook thing was, of course, chaos for us because we do IT services and support. So, um, yeah, and no one likes hearing we can't fix it because it's a it's a greater outage. It's an excuse, but they're like, well, you know, you told us to use Office 365. I'm like, no, the world uses Office 365. It's not my fault. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, even working, you know, in some smaller scales than you did, you know, we get questions about, well, this website is down. Well, I don't run that particular website. I don't, <sighs> I don't know if you're aware of that. It's a service that we pay for. Well, why did we pay for such a broken system? Well, because there's like three options and this one was like the middle option. So yeah. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> So anyway, that kind of leads us uh, squarely into kind of who you are and what you do. And uh, why are you on my show? <laughs> oh, uh, I think it's because I do YouTube. So yes. uh, I, a couple couple facets. So I, I have an IT services company I've had for the last 17 years. Um, and somewhere maybe, I don't know, four or five years ago, I said, hey, I should talk about all this stuff on YouTube. Uh, so that's kind of what led me to doing a little bit more of it and uh, I do firewalls and I do a lot of network engineering work as part of what we do at my company. And that led me to doing a bunch of videos on PF sense and everything else. So uh, it kind of got traction. And, and as this guy will tell you, YouTube's a little bit of an addiction. You don't think it's, it's like, Oh, look, someone watched my video. I better make another one and then another one. And it just becomes kind of fun. And uh, I've actually really enjoyed the process of teaching people things, um, getting some of the feedback that, Hey, I learned a lot from all this stuff. So it's, it's kind of a back and forth with the audience right now. So I've, I really enjoyed it. It's been a, it's a great career and journey. And I still have, um, my tech job because I integrated YouTube into what I do uh, with my staff and everything else. Right. I still run my company, um, part-time actually I run my company. Uh, so I hired more people and then the other time I do YouTube. So awesome. Yeah, uh, thanks so well, much I for like joining beer, us. Right? We, that's the reason I'm here. So. And, and he likes beer. I mean, that's yeah. that's the perfect reason to be on my show. Tech, uh, beer, right. oh, and some cars. We'll get to that later, but there's some car talk. So. We'll, we'll get to cars later. I feel that one might kind of you know take the rest of the show, so I kind of save that one for last. Yeah, but, once you get in a car topic and you just argue about stuff. <laughs> it just goes, right. Yeah. Uh, so in honor of you, I uh, decided to grab my favorite Michigan beer, so I got a, a Dragon's Milk Stout, which is... Absolutely fantastic, and I'm assuming you have a brew sitting right next to you. I do. I'm going to crack this. Uh, Humaluma. Humaluma. You got you have this one out there from Shorts. Uh, I've never seen that one before. No. 
No, um, this is a really good beer. It is a uh, super hoppy, um, to a, let me try to read the bottom of it. A complex hop and makes the, the, why is it too dark to read? The, oh, the all, the all park in your mouth. That's a weird way to word that. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, it's a really good hoppy IPA. And nice. I'm, I'm kind of partial to those. Yes, as am I. Uh, well, I like pretty much all beers except farmhouse. Farmhouse ales are pretty much the one thing that I just don't like. I don't like the real heavy skunk, uh, but just about everything else, I'm I'm totally game. I I don't sour beers one that I'm not a big. I can do small doses of sour beer. It, those are a little bit harder for me. Something about are oh, you getting into the the kettle sours and things like that? Yeah, my wife really <laughs> likes them, but uh, me, I'm like, oh, it just. It, it seems a little bit wrong. Like I don't, I feel like I'm eating something that is spoiled because kind of I am. Right. <laughs> Normally I like fermented things. So I don't know yeah. why those don't, I, I'll drink half of one and I'll just give the rest to her. <laughs> See, and that's kind of how I feel about farmhouses. Is it's kind mm. of like, this doesn't feel natural for my body to be drinking. Like I normally avoid smells like this. So yeah. why am I, yeah, why am I putting it into wrong. myself? Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, so we are going to do things a little bit different tonight. Like I said, we do have some news to get to, but we also have just kind of a little bit of a kind of back and forth between me and Tom. We've got some uh, some ideas for some topics, and uh, I did put those down in the video description. But uh, we're also going to be kind of open to wherever the discussion takes us. So if uh, yeah. we get onto a topic and you guys have ideas, feel free to throw them out there. We are, uh, we're more than happy to jump on a tangent tonight. Um, I don't think I'm going to do any, any beer shout outs in the early comments. Cause I kind of like to just get rolling with this thing. Sure. So, uh, probably the biggest, uh, the most requested thing for us to talk about, I went ahead and put first and that's why do I choose Proxmox and why do you choose XPC and XCPNG? All right. Well, I'll so, start with XCPNG because, uh, matter of fact, me and Xavier were talking about this today because I was helping out build his new server. Uh, so we started with uh, clients we had that had Citrix. That's actually what first turned me on to it. So, you know, we had people with ESXi, of course, and the usual right. uh, Hyper-V. Mm -hmm. But I started playing with the Citrix. I was like, this, hey, this is pretty cool. And this is a few years ago. And as I got into it, I'm like, I kind of like this platform. I like the layout of it. I mean, we were using the Zen Orchestra system to manage it. And uh, I actually got to know a little bit Oliver Lambert. He's one of the developers over at uh, Zen Orchestra. So. Um, Citrix made a horrible uh, decision to have an upgrade from 7.1 to 7.2 that actually removed all your features um, mm -hmm. and put them behind a license. And I found that out in my cloud gaming server. <laughs> yes, yes. It's like, oh, you need a license for something. You're like, oh, this is stupid. All I did was hit update. Now I need a license. This, this and and now half right. the features that I was already using no longer work. Right. Yeah, so uh, Citrus Explorer Choice led um, Oliver to put a team together and start uh, the XCPNG project. And so I was there you know, with them. I'm like, cool, because they made a drop-in replacement that just went over the top of Citrix, but all the features came back. So your <laughs> VMs and everything imported. So we migrated clients over to this. And um, as I got into understanding the Zen API, how scalable it was, and mm -hmm. uh, dealing with a few clients who had massive amount of servers, orchestrating like two and 300 VMs across pools. I said, I think, I think this is the right scalability and everything else. Uh, so I just kind of got really used to using it and really enjoyed it. I do know the the common problem in, in what me and Xavier like troubleshoot, troubleshooting today is some of the pass-through is a little bit harder in there. But the only time you ever do pass-through is really, for me at least, edge cases, because a lot of times we're uh, working with people using this in data centers. Mm 
So mm-hmm. they're not worried about card pasture. They're managing large pools with large VMs and everything else. And uh, I kind of like the interface. At first, it was weird because all the icons are big. I won't, if you've yes. used orchestra, you're like, who did this UI? This is right. <laughs> it, it looks like it's out of like 2002. It, yes. it, it looks like, you know, the giant bulky buttons that you got at the top of like every application back then. Yeah, <laughs> it, it absolutely was weird, uh, but it really quickly grew on me and uh, working with them and talking to developers, uh, they have built a really extensive private networking stack, which does include um, the VXLANs and GRE encrypted tunnels. And if, if you're doing any type of security research, and I have videos on this, like how to build your uh, virtualized lab, they have really high-end virtualized networking that spreads across multiple servers. So there's a lot of built-in functionality and features. The other reason I'm a big uh, fan of XCPNG is natively you can import OVA and OVA2 files. So there's a lot of appliances that if you just want to grab the OVA file for, which is common for VirtualBox, so you can right. stand up an appliance without loading it, um, you can just import it in XCPNG. You just go grab it, drop it in, it sets it up, configures it, and no problems. Um, then having all the native backups and everything else in there, so that's mm-hmm. that's definitely um, a nice feature. Being able to there's when you use the Zen Orchestra with it, it's a complete turnkey. You're not buying a third party backup. You're not using something extra external. So having it all integrated with there, plus all the migration features um, from the command line, you can get really tricky when you do some of that. So it's actually pretty cool. So it's a, there's yep. it's like a cool ecosystem that feels complete without really happen to um, go outside for like a turnkey solution that we drop in for clients. Right. Yeah. Um, pretty much most of the reasons that you listed that you like XPCNG um, is kind of the reasons I like Proxmox is they're both open source. They're both free to use. Yep. Um, and uh, they're both based off very, very robust existing ecosystem. So with uh, with Proxmox, it's based off QEMU. And with, uh, with uh, XPCNG, it's based off of... Uh, uh, Zen, Zen Orchestra. Yep. Um, and so they're both very, very well established, like 20 year track histories as far as virtualization and data centers and whatnot. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you hit the nail right on the head with a lot of the features. Um, the the integrated backup solution. Uh, Proxmox has an animated or an integrated backup solution that you can schedule uh, nightly, daily, weekly, monthly, whatever you want for backups. Um, and you can choose. Uh, to do snapshots on it. Uh, I like the ZFS integration into uh, yes. into Proxmox. That's one thing that I don't know that, that Zen has. That's, so uh, Zen has it, but you have to manage it from the command line. So okay. yeah. you'll check the box that it has it, but for someone who's especially starting out in home lab, which I know I have a lot of those uh, people on my channel, um, that may be a little bit of a daunting thing going, hey, I'm not really comfortable uh, setting up ZFS pools uh, from the command line and managing right. it. Right. And, uh, and yeah, ZFS is natively integrated into Proxmox. Um, not all of the features have made it to the GUI yet. And so kind of similar, you can't yeah. do everything from the GUI, uh, but, uh, but you can set up a ZFS pool. You can manage it. You get all the same graphical interfaces that you do for an EXT pool or a RAID array or anything like that. Um, and uh, it's just a great file system to work with. Very, very scalable. Um, it has... Uh, uh, native clustering support, and so you can you know spin up multiple nodes and automatically load balance between between systems. Um, it, uh, also, the thing that I really like about it is instead of relying on uh, the Zen Orchestra or the Zen the Citrix Zen Manager, the Windows application, it's all natively integrated. It's all native web applications, and if you have a cluster, 
all of your nodes have that same interface and you can manage every other node from any website. So if you have a problem with one of your nodes, you can log into the other node and manage everything just the same. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it's a little bit more scalable and it's a little bit more kind of choose your platform on the administrative side instead of being tied to that Windows app. But if I had to choose something that I'm nitpicky about for Zen, that's that's getting really, really <laughs> down there. <laughs> it, it's hard. And um, one of the other things you didn't mention, maybe you don't use it, uh, but I have a friend who's a, a big Proxmox fan. He's uh, Jay from Learn Linux TV. Uh, mm -hmm. He's a big Docker user. And mm -hmm. the Docker and container management is relatively robust. It's now gotten better in, a, in the Zen Orchestra, but I've not ever used it because I'm not, a, I don't really use that many Docker containers. Uh, and nor does. do I. Right. Proxmox uh, has a pretty solid way of handling them. So that's, now, I will admit that's another tick box over to them for um, that feature. Yeah. Um, I've always come from the management side of things with, I know Docker is really big with Home Lab because you get a little bit more bang for your buck out of your virtualization yep. stack than you do with native you know, virtualization. Um, instead of emulating an entire machine, you just spin up the same kernel and you throw whatever service you want at it and it kind of lives in its own sandbox. But that also comes with its own limitations of you have to run the same kernel in a Docker to run the application that you want. Um, an update to your kernel on your host OS can bork services down the line. And so it's it's a take the good with the bad. And in in my line of work, it was always, if you have the resources to virtualize it, just virtualize it because then it's truly its own sandbox and something you do to the host will not affect the guest. Yeah, there's, it's, uh, the other challenge too with Docker is there is the more potential, because you're sharing your kernel space, so you have more potential for security issues, um, which is also one of the reasons I've generally just run things separate. Um, and it would also uh, force me to learn Docker networking better and I'm not good at it. <laughs> so. I learned that because I have, um, we have a couple things that not for shared resource reasons, but for deployment reasons, we're running them inside of Docker. Like I self-host Bitwarden. Uh, mm -hmm. They do a great job of updating their Docker images and the forums I use. Um, the software I use for the forum, the discourse uh, software, really great Docker deployment. Um, it's It's got solid pruning and everything else. They've automated it so I don't have to know much about Docker and I can keep maintaining <laughs> it. <laughs> nice. That's, that's always the that's best when you can just kind of throw something at the wall and let it stick and go, okay, it's up. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. And it's like really cool. You could just roll back to the previous version of Docker. I'm like, neat. I understand everything go. in concept. It's the nuance and the commands because I don't do them very often. I don't know. Um, right. People I know that manage it because they do it like for a living or at scale. Yeah, they get really mm -hmm. good at it. But right. I, I love when everything's just one individual container, not attached to other virtual machines. It's solid in one piece. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, see, my biggest client that I worked with uh, was a Hyper-V shop. And so I got really, really good at Microsoft Hyper-V, and I knew all the ins and outs of, yeah. of how you manage that. Uh, you also learn to live inside the limitations of it um, because it's as well tied in as it is for a Windows client to run inside of Hyper-V. If you want to run any other OS uh, as a client, boy, there are some hoops to jump through sometimes. Um, and, uh, and and it's mainly why I don't recommend most people use Hyper-V is because you, unless you are 100% in the Windows environment, it makes it a little tricky. And um, you're tied into the Windows update environment breaking. And yep. we've seen enough people that have had some scalability problems. We've actually done a couple Hyper-V um, moving them over to XCPNG because they were building out building out their data center. And like we feel like we've outgrown the product because it just becomes kind of a headache. Right. And um, they were really facing challenges. And they, they started with XCPNG and they hired me for consulting on some finalized setup on it. Mm -hmm. But 
yeah, it, it's one of those things you get into and you're like, oh, like they said, they feel like, I mean, you shouldn't outgrow your hypervisor like that. Microsoft's a right. And uh, uh, there, there was one I was working with uh, that had seven physical boxes and I think they had close to 90 different VMs running across them. And again, because you're running pretty much all native Windows clients underneath it or Windows guest OSs, um, you're dealing with, you know, Windows Update service. And um, even if you set up WSUS correctly, and even if you jump through all the hoops of WCCM and, and all the other services that kind of tie in to make sure Windows updates run properly, you're still going to get bit by Windows updates. And, yeah. and it's still going to cause downtime eventually. And it's still, it's still another layer of management that you have to add on to each individual uh, guest OS that you're running. And so I, I see in the comments, someone says disable the updates. And I'm like, no, as a security person, stop no, that. No. <laughs> Just turn them off. No. I, I know that's the answer for stability. That's not yeah. the answer for security. <laughs> right. If you're a home user, I might sometimes recommend that. Yeah. And and only if yeah. you're like a gaming PC where it's like, if this thing crashes, who cares? But if you're running any kind of a server, that answer is no. <laughs> Yeah, and that's something I believe both Proxmox and XCPG do very well. Is you know, uh, Proxmox is based is CentOS at its core, so it's just yum right. update. You can they fully they have their own repositories. You update from uh, command line with the yum update, or you can tell it to auto patch, and it just it works. I've never had a patch go wrong. I don't even no, brace for impact on that. <laughs> you have a table nearby to knock on. <laughs> yeah, knock on. I know one of these times they're gonna they're gonna do it wrong, <laughs> right? Um. But yeah, uh, we, we like to in the in the tech community. You know, we have to choose sides, and it's it's black or it's white kind of thing. Um, but honestly, they're both solid products, and it's kind of comes down to what you're more comfortable with. And and I've got nothing against you know XCPNG, and I'm sure Tom has nothing against Proxmox. But it's it's fun to argue about it. <laughs> no, you know it's funny too. The um, there's a lot of techs that get that way. They get uh, really biased towards their This things. is the and solution. We were joking before the show. I said, sometimes I spend part of my time reading, in, as I'm fascinated by psychology and the way people think, uh, because it's so relevant to what we do. But that is one of those things. Like you, I try not to be biased. I'm like, I just because I like one product doesn't mean I hate the other. Matter of fact, right. I think it's interesting to see the back and forth of uh, discussion on these type of things. Because maybe, mm -hmm. especially when you're talking about two open source projects, Open source projects literally are happy to borrow from each other. Hey, yes. that's a cool idea. We should implement it. And that goes, it's a two-way street for people that are good developers. So that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, versus when you're, when you're closed, when you're closed source um, and you, you start talking about, um, you know, let's do the old adage. No one's ever been fired for buying Cisco gear. <laughs> uh, no one ever has because Cisco typically works, but at the same time, you you are bound now to Cisco's licensing scheme. You are bound to their update cycles. You're bound to their maintenance, uh, you know, uh, subscriptions. And, and you, you go down the list of everything that you have to do to be a Cisco ecosystem. And for some companies, it works and it works fantastically well. And then for other companies, they're like, well, we don't have someone dedicated to manage our Cisco accounts and make sure the rep you know, is, is, is in tune with what our network needs and everything else. And so maybe an open source solution is more their game, or maybe Palo Alto works better for them, or maybe Aruba, or maybe, you know, um, but, uh, just because someone chooses a, a platform to, you know, run their business on doesn't mean they hate everything else. Right. 
Yeah, you kind of get, and it is the whole thing of getting embedded. Once you've kind of went, mm-hmm. this, like, look, it's all here. Cool that you came in, you're the new guy, you want to change it, but right. um, we were $80,000 into our infrastructure. <laughs> right. Um, you, you look at, uh, we'll, we'll talk Unify. We'll talk Unify, yeah. the changes that they made uh, this last week with, uh, Ooh, yeah. with discontinuing video. Um, I mean, you, you talk about investing into an infrastructure. Unify came onto the block uh, with their switching and with their their access points, and they kind of flipped the market on its head because the rulers in the wireless market, as far as you know, distributed WAN connections, had been uh, Cisco, Meraki, Ruckus, you know, those were the players, and they all had the exact same licensing plans. They all had the exact same maintenance things where you bought an access point for $450, $500, and then you also paid $150 a year to be able to use that product to license it to work with the Cisco Switch, which we were also paying another $500 a year to license that, and so on and so forth. And then Unify came out and they said, enterprise-grade WAPs, and they're $150 a piece, and the Switch is $400, and they're license-free that yeah and it was insane and it's funny because i have a video i'm working on and i was trying to get permission from the company to use their name they wouldn't let me mm-hmm. um but the it person said i can drop his name which i thought was fun but anyways <laughs> we deployed 300 of them and this is the argument that people always come as tom they're not really that good in the enterprise they fall apart after more than 10 20 insert number and hater and right and, insert whatever number that cisco lasts longer right yeah and it's it's really um does it have certain features that you'll find in that seven eight hundred dollar cisco you're right it might be missing a few right. does it work for this building that we deployed 300 high-end hd access points that keep mm-hmm. two thousand users going all the time on them yep. it's been working now i purposely waited to do the video we installed them in 2018 we just loaded the latest version and pushed all the firmware updates last week. That's why I'm bringing it up again. So here we are this long end and, and the IT director's like, I'm thrilled. He goes, these things are great. We're looking right. at expanding our business some more. We're going to buy more. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, no. Uh, yeah, like I said, my largest client, they ran HP switching uh, for all of their, their internal switches. They were a Hyper-V shop on the data center. And then uh, they ran Unify access points um, and they had... 285 access points. They had about 3,500 uh, unique clients per day, and they almost never had a problem with them. I mean, they they just they just worked, and they had uh, 99% of the features that you could ever want out of a Cisco or a Ruckus device. And the most expensive points that we deployed were $300. They were the the HD points. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they they do, and uh, almost all the problems we have when we you know, when we do any consulting with someone about their problems they're having with it, mm-hmm. we find misconfigured networks, loops, yes. misconfigured routes, like other fundamental problems with their network that mm-hmm. we usually help troubleshoot. Um, we, we troubleshooted spanning tree not being turned on on a series of multi, this was across about 30 miles. They had a whole bunch of fiber runs and someone had just turned off on and pushed the settings wrong to a couple of them, but they were blaming uh-huh. the Wi-Fi units. And it was literally, we dug into config files, it was switch spanning tree not turned on. It was and, a 60 mile fiber loop. <laughs> yeah, they had all these different, and it, that's why it wouldn't happen all the time because the fiber loops are so long. And they it was, uh, it was providing, it was actually on an Indian reservation and it was providing Wi-Fi across a series of Indian reservations. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was fiber loops and, and long range site to sites. So so it would take a long time for any loop problems to occur. But yeah. once we solved the loop problems, all their other problems went away. And they're like, oh, I don't guess we have any problems now. 
Right. And and, and when you get it was the APs. <laughs> right. And when you get into when you're talking to clients who don't understand the the background of the network, you know, when when the curtains peel back, they have no idea what's going on. Um, you get a lot of everything's broken. Okay, well, what's broken? Well, I can't get on this website. Okay, are you on a laptop or a desktop? Well, I'm on a laptop. Okay. Can you get to another website? Well, I didn't try that. Okay. Well, I can get onto web that website. Okay, well, then that website is down. Or, well, no, I can't get into any websites. Okay, is your laptop connected to the Wi-Fi? How do you do that? <laughs> and 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 whatnot. So you you uh, you get this this model in your head where you can start breaking down. Okay, they said this, but the problem is definitely something else. But how do we get them to explain what the problem actually is? And and that's that's a skill I developed over a, a pretty long <laughs> career at this point. Of uh, everything's not working. Uh, in fact, uh, my last trouble call. So my job ended on June thirtieth. I had a trouble call on June twenty fifth. Uh, of an everything is working at one of our client or everything is broken at one of our client sites. And I get into the monitors and and uh, we use a PRTG over there. And PRTG was green across the board. There's not a single problem. There's not a single device down. There's not, you know, there's not even, there's not even a yellow as far as like, oh, there's abnormal activity. No, it was green across the board. Went, okay, can you tell me exactly what you're trying to do? Well, I'm trying to log into this website and da 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 da, da, da and, and nothing's working. Everyone's having problems. They were typing their password in wrong. <laughs> but I got a call as the tech on call. <laughs> so you have to be able to break these down and find out what the root cause of the problem is and then address that. And so I, I can totally see, you know, looped fiber is the Wi-Fi is down. Yeah, or the Wi-Fi is not working. <laughs> it's a very long-winded way to explain that, but yeah. It but you're right. You're <laughs> completely right on there. So what's the next debate we should have? Next debate. Let's take a look at the notes. Uh, Is it free NAS? Free NAS. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, ev everyone, everyone likes free NAS and, uh, and I wrote, and so should you. Um, okay. Because uh, I, I'm kind of curious and I, I didn't ask you this beforehand because I kind of wanted to go into this, you know, fresh on air, but uh, have you ever used any other, um, uh, file NAS systems? It has been, I'm seeing at least six or seven years, if not longer since I tried. So before I got into free NAS, and I gotta say it was my, probably six years ago, um, mm -hmm. I remember trying, I, is it, there's one called Open Filer. Is that yeah. one of them? Yeah. I remember that one. And, but before that, I just ran my own stuff. Uh, matter of fact, in the earlier days, around mid 2000s, uh, I had a riser FS backup system. We were selling backups to clients back in 2005 and we had mm -hmm. built our own mini data center for it. And yeah. we just rolled our own, um, built all on Debian. I was, I've always been a Debian Linux admin for about 20 years now. So naturally it was all built on Debian. Um, and I remember trying some of the other ones and until I got to FreeNAS, um, none of them felt complete. And I jumped in at FreeNAS. It would have been eight or nine, however long, yeah. wherever the status they were at. And I just kind of said, wow, and never looked back. So yeah. I, I want to try the other ones. It's like always on my to-do list, but it never it ends up falling short. I have worked with some of the Dell Power Vaults, but not obviously it's way different than working with open source mm -hmm. ones. And I hated every second of working with those and setting up iSCSI. I just kept like saying, this is stupid. And <laughs> this is stupid. Why did they I, do it this way? Why right. they do it this way? This yeah. can't be true. Is it really like this? This is dumb too. I need a license for another iSCSI extent. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I worked with some uh, some Barracuda backplanes uh, way back in the day. That was uh, early 2010s. Um, I actually used FreeNAS at home for a very short time. I want to say as early as like 2008. So I think they were on version like five, maybe six. Yeah. Um, and and I at that time I didn't quite know what I was doing. I I, I had no idea how to run Linux or, or any any let alone any variant of BSD. Um, and uh, so I would try doing something with it, and I I managed to get like a basic Windows you know file share up and running, and it's like okay cool well it kind of works. And then I'm like, well, why don't I just share a window, you know, a Samba share on my on my Windows box? And so that, and so I, you know, uninstalled it and just installed Windows and and, and off I ran. And then I kind of rediscovered FreeNAS. Um, I want to say about 2014. Um, and so probably you know right about the same time you picked it up between versions eight and nine. And uh, it it's been everything I've ever wanted out of a NAS system ever since. Um, and constantly improving and you know what features do they have that you could possibly want on another device uh you know uh snapshots is probably the number one thing that i always come back to uh as as far as having enabled uh you know especially in this this day and age with with ransomware being so prevalent uh uh we had a uh, my previous organization, we got hit with ransomware three times. Once was on a Windows file share and twice was on FreeNAS. The Windows file share took us down for close to 18 hours um, where I had to disconnect to the NAS from the network. I then had to uh, go to our backup server, find the most recent backups, what whatever snapshot or, you know, incremental image wasn't wasn't affected by it uh and then roll back and the rollback took probably 15 of those 18 hours the rest of it was just kind of digging in going through your checks and balances of when you have an exploit you know did any data leave the network did you know who <laughs> who downloaded it where was the point of origin you know doing all your all your postmortem stuff there um and then you know, we got back up and we probably lost about two hours worth of data during production time. And it's like, well, that sucks, but at least we're back up and running. Um, versus FreeNAS, we set hourly snapshots and it takes, what, 250, 300 megs per snapshot if there's no changes. Yep. And and then all you do is is incremental on, on that. And so you set that back for, I think we had six weeks of one hour snapshots or something like that is, is yeah. what we ran. Zip. <laughs> right. It's like, oh no, one one terabyte that we lost. Ah. And uh, we got hit by two of them after that. And one of them encrypted close to three terabytes of data uh, because it, it hit late at night before we found it. And so it had every single network drive uh, that the guy had access to. And this was a, a higher up guy that, that downloaded it. Um, it always is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, I got a call at six in the morning that I couldn't act, that someone couldn't access files. I log in and go, oh, we got ransomware. I logged into FreeNAS and I clicked the, the snapshot restore button back to the point before we got hit. We lost absolutely no data because we got hit after hours, you know, so there was no one working. But uh, we rolled back and I think it took like, 17 minutes or something like that it's like okay we're done yep you're just waiting there's no real labor involved you just wait in 17 minutes to be complete yeah it's just hey it's done now cool everything's back up and uh and it's the only system i've ever worked with that has that level of security that's not going to your backup system and and trying to access it from there and you know we still ran you know three two one backups so we had you know 
three locate three three copies of the data two locations and we did all that but if you never have to touch the backup system because you're running snapshots even better <laughs> in and one of the things we're seeing in these um larger environments is sometimes they want to pay the ransom because hey cool we have it all backed up but the uh restoring the backups will cost more than a ransom like the labor involved and the downtime involved is so extensive because like hey cool we have gigabit fiber except we also have seven terabytes a day to download or 17 terabytes or it scales up with the size of the company so uh, i feel my friends who work in security that's been one of their challenges like they have the backups but it's too hard to get it back yeah yeah especially if you're Especially, if, and and you also get into a bandwidth concern of, especially if you're paying, you know, metered uh, metered internet connections. Oh yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Because there's an, the egress charge to get it back out of Amazon S3 and or right. wherever you stored it back over. There's some egress fees that you may mm-hmm. pay too. So right. there's like a, it's a compounding problem for sure. Yeah, uh, there was actually there was actually a neighboring town near me that uh, I think last month paid a six hundred thousand dollar bounty to get their Ouch. their data back because they got ransomware. <laughs> yeah so it happens but That's... uh but as far as other file systems go um i've ran i've ran microsoft file systems just a samba share and god what a sad state of affairs that was um i hated that thing every step of the way um i hated anything i ever had to, had to do with it and uh as, as soon as we we jumped on freenas we never looked back yeah i I get some people who like Unraid. It's got some features that mm-hmm. uh, users like, you know, and Linus made it kind of famous with some of his videos. I, right. Is that the one he used for like his multi-game error PC? Which yes. Is, hey, that's cool. I mean, yeah. there's definitely those use cases. They're, they're less used in the It's enterprise probably the best one you can use for like PCI Express pass-through and some of those yeah. those niche cases that that he really, really highlighted. Plus, it is still a solid file system. You know, it, it's still a solid NAS in, in its core. Um, but... Uh, I like the features of FreeNAS. FreeNAS is rock solid as as far as stability and and everything else you could possibly get out of it. Yeah, <laughs> no. yeah, it's one of those ain't broke, don't fix it, and away you go. And yeah, so and we've done some fairly large installs of uh, servers in a lot of uh, medical facilities and things like that, and we did mm-hmm. some cities. So you know, they're that's that they just work and um, yeah. the cities are thankful for it. And that's why they got us because they previously experienced ransomware. Ooh, <laughs> it's, they, They're like, I, we don't want to do this again. Right. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, let's see. Next up, uh, we've got some security stuff to get into. Uh, let's kind of go one, two, three on this thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> s- starting with um, a, a leak or a hack that was kind of exposed, um, gosh, last summer, which feels like about four years ago at this point. I, uh, I know. Time time is happening really fast now. I can't believe we're halfway through 2020. Also, we're halfway through 2020. Yeah, <laughs> also, we're halfway through ago. 20, Right. <laughs> Isn't it like 2023 at this point? That's. I feel like I've had three New Year's since then. <laughs> But anyway, uh, this was uh, first talked about last summer. In fact, I think I might have covered it on the channel. I don't remember entirely, but uh, we'll get into it a little bit here. And that is uh, MGM in Vegas. Um, uh, They exposed some user data. And what was originally ported was 10.6 million user accounts or user information 
was leaked, uh, including identifiable information. So uh, phone numbers, mailing addresses, you know, proper names, etc. They said no financials and no social security numbers were leaked, but at the same time, that's still 90% of what you need to build a profile and, you know, identity theft and everything else. Um, and you can find the other 10% by surfing that same website. But uh, the leak apparently is much, much larger than originally reported. Uh, I'm hearing numbers anywhere from about 100 million to about 142 million uh, guests were actually compromised here. And this is reminiscent of the Star Hotel breach uh, previously, where it's just mm-hmm. a math. The leak was bigger than they thought. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. lot of personal data. Um, there's also, I'm trying to remember which episode number it was, but Darknet Diaries did a great dive into one of the hotel hacks. And it was really a fun listen. Was because, that the, uh, the Marriott one? Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun to go back and forth on it of all the little things that were involved and everything else. And it's it just keeps, get, keeps getting bigger um, the more you dive into it. And all these companies are trying to fight with, well, it wasn't that much data and things oh, like right. that, um, you know, because they, they don't want to do full disclosure. They don't want to dive deeper into it. They don't want to admit, oh yeah, they were in there for a while. Because you know what happens every time you do one of these debriefs on security, um, it's like, we joke, my other friends that work in uh, research are like, oh yeah, they make a sign NDA so we can't tell you how stupid they were. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It it wasn't sophisticated hacks. It was just a series, a calamity of poor security. (laughs) Right. And that's, and that's kind of what this was uh the leak happened because all of the data was accessible on a on a public ip address they they just literally downloaded it yeah um it it wasn't encrypted it wasn't you know now to be fair to to mgm the fine people over there uh the financial data was not kept with the identifiable data and so that's good we'll give kudos where kudos is due um but at the same time you still exposed 142 million people's you know personally identifiable information to a public ip address um It's and it's funny too because I like the fact that it's only selling for twenty nine hundred dollars. Twenty nine hundred dollars for one hundred forty three million records. Right? Yeah, like that's. <laughs> I think that's a deal. I right. mean, you can buy some big data for a relatively low price. <laughs> What's really funny is all the websites that come out and say we viewed the data and have confirmed the findings, which means you probably paid twenty nine hundred dollars because you're going to get more clicks on your website than you paid for the data. Yeah. So. <laughs> You're That's part of the problem. News now. organizations to verify it's real. Right, right. I know, I know news organizations pay ransoms for this. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, as uh, We Live Security points out, yeah, 142 million uh, guest data available for just $2,900. Oh, man. That's so. fun. That's yeah, fun. The- the, the the downside to this, and the reason I kind of wanted to bring this up is, uh, is you mentioned exactly that with the NDAs with, with security companies is uh, um, a lot of times they want to keep the number of, of people exposed under wraps because there can be, you know, civil charges that could be brought against them and, and civil suits and everything else for exposing this kind of data. And uh, if they keep the number lower, the li- their, their exposure and their liability is lower. However, when it starts coming out that the information was higher, you gain higher liability as well because you tried to withhold information. And so the original report came out in July 2019 that 10.6 million users were exposed. Uh, And they tried very, very hard to keep that under wraps. And when the report came out, they knew it was false and said, yeah, that sounds good. (laughs) Yeah. 
We'll go with that number. We'll, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. And, and everyone reported the same number, and so no one ever questioned it. And all of a sudden, people are looking back and going, wait, these names are from the same hack. Why are there a lot more in this Excel spreadsheet that I just and, got? And the other challenge you have when you come down to a civil lawsuit with this is, was there gross negligence? Like, right. Were you guys ineptly, you know, everything was just poorly done. You didn't patch anything for the last five years. You left things open on public IPs. Uh, yep. You know how egregious were your <laughs> were your uh, faults? <laughs> were your internal practices right? And yeah. and and that's what that's also what they want to keep under wraps is they don't want to show people what they did to expose this data. They just want to let people know that it was exposed and we've contained it or you know whatever the expression they want to use. But uh, yeah, it's come out this week that it's 142 million. The um, I my friend was telling me he had a wonderful debate in uh he had a client they didn't have any logging and but they were trying to say well we know hackers were inside but did the exfiltrate our data and he's like look you have no logs well yeah so that they we can say they didn't because it's cheaper on our insurance and he's like i can tell you that i have egress data from your isp the there's like three terabytes of sustained transfer they're like, what does that mean? Well, you had about three terabytes of data. So I'm going to say someone took it. But can you prove that? Is what they like arguing back and forth. Right. He's like, right. um, it, it's too much of a coincidence to have a three terabytes interesting transfer cumulatively yeah. and have three terabytes of data. I think they took your data. <laughs> right. They go, well, we have to tell a lot of people that their data is missing. And he's like, yes, yes you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> Um, I, luckily, I've never been through one of those situations, but I, ha I have colleagues who have. I have colleagues who have been through some massive breaches and, and had to been in talks with the FBI and are paying 30 years of, uh, of identity, identity protection programs for employees and guests and customers and things because they were exposed because of either poor security practices or their secretary happened to download invoice.exe. Yeah, so... <laughs> You know, not as bad as Twitter. Twitter can't deny what's going on at all. Twitter can't deny what happened today. No. That was a great segue, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so, because... if you aren't, so if you aren't on Twitter, oh, man. Uh, if anyone with a check mark tweeted something out today, it was probably along the lines of, please send me Bitcoin to this unidentifiable uh, wallet. And uh, don't worry, I'm going to give half of it away to charity. Yeah. And they gave, um, I mean, they had some big accounts. They had Elon, Bill Gates, they had, uh, they, they had Joe Biden, they had Kanye Joe, West, they yeah. had, uh, uh Mr. Barack Beast. Obama, Mr. Yeah. Beast. Yeah. So it's, it's, in, it's an incredible number of them. And we were laughing because I'm like, well, can we tell if Kanye was even hacked? It's just something absurd. Same with Elon. It can sounds like just, something he would say. Yeah. We're like, he <laughs> might be say fair. That. And Mr. Beast, um, who actually does donate uh, things to people and plays you know, hundreds large. and thousands and millions of dollars. Right. Yeah. So when he says, I'm going to do money, why not? Like, hey, right. oh, Mr. Beast said it. So they picked some of the right accounts. Now, what also impressed me was I they didn't just tweet once. They replied a couple times to try to uh, build validity. So right. it wasn't like a one and done and spray all this across there and they locked it down. No, they were able to impersonate these verified users. For um, a couple of hours. Right. Um, so you can see one of the tweets here uh, from, I'm going to put that in quotes, Joe Biden. I'm giving back to the community. All Bitcoin sent to the address below will be sent back doubled. If you send $1,000, I'll send $2,000. Only doing this for 30 minutes. Act now. Supplies are limited. 
um, followed by a Bitcoin wallet address and nothing but a tweet saying that I'm going to give back to the community because of COVID-19. Yeah. Um, so it, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's crazy. Um, there is, there's obviously something fundamentally wrong. So that's really, it's really going to be interesting to get the debrief and I'm hoping Twitter really comes clean. They almost have to because they're in the public spotlight. You're talking about a platform that is used by any of, you know, not just any political candidates, but just generally um, very large people who in the celebrity world as a whole. Mm -hmm. So they're going to really have to kind of answer to this. And there's obviously a lot of money exchanged in this. Like there was. Uh, the, the last count that I saw was there had been $675,000 transferred uh, to yeah. that Bitcoin wallet. Um, so this wasn't a small little thing. This was basically Twitter's elite, all all having two-factor two authentication bypassed, all having their password uh, email or their password reset email address uh, changed, all having their phone numbers changed on the password uh, reset as well. Um, this was an admin level thing. This was not something that was an API that was used or. An, this is this is a deeper exploit um, and very very concerning uh, that they were able to gain that level of access with absolutely no bars in their way and could impersonate these people for a number of hours. Yeah, and I and I don't know that this has been verified, but I know Swift on Security had also tweeted like, "Hey, yes. um, this looks like it's <laughs> impersonation, like they're impersonating internal users in Twitter, so it's some type of admin level access, which." is absurd like i mean that's that's keys to the kingdom right there so right. someone's getting fired <laughs> yes yeah and, and i've got the tweet on screen right now but uh but yeah um all of the the affected uh uh twitter handles had their email address reset to an email address that we can't see here because it's behind asterisks but their phone numbers were all changed their email addresses were all changed their two-factor authentication was turned off without having a two-factor authentication check on on the user side of things um wow. I, I mean it's there was a lot of security bypass here um and uh, i mean if we want to talk like root level kind of stuff that's pretty much what was going on is you had so, like you said case case of the kingdom yeah and it was it insider threat so did someone on the inside sell their credentials um mm -hmm allow access that's you know that's some of the debrief that we're going to have to figure out right. um it's going to be interesting because it's not unheard of we've seen a few of them where someone sells their creds um my friends over at hunter's labs uh they were actually shocked they found someone selling creds to another company for for literally like a thousand bucks they would sell that. it was it was, it was almost like you're really selling it for this like that little okay whatever right. you made me and the person wasn't smart um they got caught rather quickly because they also used their own name on everything <laughs> I, i've always been shocked by like you see these dateline in 2020 episodes that come out about like you know this woman was plotting to kill her husband and she paid an assassin like 750 bucks i'm like is that all it costs yeah, that seems really budget. <laughs> like, <laughs> heck, I've got a couple of people that no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, uh, apparently you know social. We've known social engineering has always been a thing. Social engineering is still a thing, and if yeah. you can find a low man on the totem pole who a thousand dollars will change their life, a thousand dollars talks. Yeah. 
So it's gonna be um it's gonna be a fun debrief. That's for sure. The the whole dive into it, like what happened. Um, I I cannot wait for the post mortem on this. Like yeah. I, I I live for the post mortems of like the Delta Airlines fire at a data center and their backups also caught fire at the same time. I love those. Yes, I I love <laughs> reading. Those. We had um so Sears slash Kmart, uh, their data centers are here in Michigan, and yes. their outage was a. A cal- I knew people in the data center and it was a calamity of errors that led to the firing of the technical officer for the stupidity that was going on. Like they tried to rig the uh, UPS system for the failover of the data center, like with used parts of some sort, which caused a second failure and caused everything to go down. It was like this, I, mean, I, I wish, I don't know if I have the write up or not somewhere, but it was just a calamity of stupid that was going on. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, we're a big company. And this person just keep kept thinking smaller and smaller. Kept of, thinking bailing wire and duct this? tape for Yeah, can we fix this with duct tape? Like you guys know you're publicly traded, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like money shouldn't be the object keeping you from like powering down things. Yeah. yeah. So what what kind of fun can we have? Uh <laughs> so after that, Microsoft, because it's always DNS. It's always, you, it's always DNS. It's always DNS. Did you have that? Do you have that haiku, that haiku uh, hanging on your wall as well? Which don't ever doesn't every technician? I think everyone does. Uh, yeah. I I was wanting to have that printed out on like on like canvas at one point and have it framed because I a just canvas wanted. print of it's always DNS. Yes. Yes, I, I would love that. Uh. Um. Anyway, yeah, Microsoft is in the news today because well, it happens to be DNS, and in this case, it's a one of the most egregious security failures I've ever seen. And, uh, and, and that's saying something for Microsoft. Yeah, this is impressive because um, all they have to do is open up a website. So anyone who has Active Directory running with a Windows server, you're affected. Um, if you have a Windows server that's older than 17 years old, you might not be affected. But if you have a Windows server that's less than 17 years old. You know, old, I had some of those clients. <laughs> yeah, we all do. <laughs> so... Um, essentially, it's really well, NT4 works just fine. What do you? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I actually have a debrief we did on my channel. Me and Xavier broke it down. But the short of it is, uh, there are signatures for DNSSEC, and those signatures can be read to validate whether or not the name servers are correct. So if you get someone to open a website, first it goes to the website. That website has authoritative name servers, and those name servers have a series of records. One of those records is the signature record, and there's a field for the signature to put the certificate. And apparently, if you put something bigger than the certificate, Microsoft will execute <laughs> said said instructions. The, and, the, uh, the address the address that sits right next to the okay insert your certificate here is the run this line of code. Yeah, essentially that's what <laughs> happened um, in the short of it. And a lot of this comes down to the fact that the way uh, boundaries are, it, you rely on the code uh, people writing the code to set the boundaries, like when you're writing in something like C, and mm-hmm. they didn't, <laughs> so you didn't sanitize the input. So. Yes. The expected is someone put a certificate. The unexpected is a payload that gets executed. And, and the, the funny part about this is the end user's workstation would be unaffected by this and the server uh, would give up its domain admin credentials. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's how that's it got a, a 10 out of a 10 score. Right. It's a 10 out of a 10 because it can be executed by any device on your network that does a DNS lookup. Yep. Any device. Any, and any it doesn't device. even... It doesn't have to, and and I put in our notes, because I, I was thinking about this while I was watching your video on it. 
it doesn't even have to be a domain registered device. If no. you are receiving DNS from the from a, a Windows domain, you can execute this code, which means if you walk into a bank and the bank has an open guest Wi-Fi and that guest Wi-Fi happens to point to the same DNS server that their servers are running on, guess what? You have domain admin credentials for that bank. You could you could do this with a smartphone and a website. That's all it takes to do. Yeah, it's such an arbitrarily easy... Start streaming. We're going to be right back to where we were. Hopefully, hopefully. YouTube still thinks we're on. I'm still getting a preview window from YouTube. That's weird. Yeah, well, and also um, I'm chatting with people. I said you're coming back, so... Yeah. Okay, I, I, just hit, I just hit start streaming, and it's the same stream, same stream key, so we should be all set. Just waiting for it to kind of... Okay, I think we're back. I think we're back live. Ah, uh, yeah. <sighs> Woo! We're alive. Cool. Yes. Wow. Well, that was nerve wracking. All of a sudden, I'm sweating. <laughs> <laughs> and we're <All> back. Right. <laughs> right. I have I have multiple chat windows now. Cool. All right. Awesome. Microsoft must not have liked what we were talking about there. <laughs> they don't like when you talk about DNS. They're like, look, we're embarrassed by it. Let me let me yeah. throw some blue screens at you. <laughs> I know it was DNS. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean, should we skip over talking about how bad Outlook is? <laughs> oh, boy. At this point. <laughs> Cut my losses, man. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, as I was kind of saying, the reason this exploit is kind of so egregious is you can do this with a smartphone and that's about it. And you can do it to any open Wi-Fi network that happens to pass through a Windows DNS that is also a domain server. Um, and thinking about a lot of my organizations, a lot of them ran a lot of DNS through their Windows domain controllers because that was how you got client authentication. That was how you got you know internal services that you were providing. And it's a lot. It's a long list of things that uh, that Windows controls when you look at a domain network. Yeah, no, it's a um, get the good whiskey out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I may jump to whiskey next. In fact, my beer is about there. So that's, that's what I was thinking too. I got I'm almost there. <laughs> Jeff's hair reminds me of basic training. Yeah, it's because my hair got way too long and, and I still haven't gone to a barber, so I bar borrowed a pair of clippers from my in-laws and set it to a three and just went. So. Yeah, low maintenance is the way to go. And, yeah. you know, even though I have long hair, it's low maintenance. I've had the same long hair forever, so it just goes in a ponytail. Like, I don't yep. do anything because that would require effort. Right. <laughs> uh, my ideal hair length, because I like to do you know, something with my hair. I don't like just the straight buzz cut, but as soon as it gets to about an inch, inch and a quarter, and I can just take my hand out of the shower and do that, and it's combed over and it's done. There you go. There's there's no product, there's no maintenance, there's no like, uh. it, it got to the point though, my hair gets to a point where it starts curling on the sides. Oh. And so I get like these wings flapping out from the sides of my head and it drives me nuts. And my hair was beyond that for about three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I'm done. I was I have a bald friend. He just celebrated our birthday. I'm like, 
you don't look any older. That's what I told him. I said, because I can't tell. You're not like, I've gotten grayer over the years. He's, he's always does like the big bald. He's been right. doing it since he was in his 20s. Right. He, he lost the middle at like 25 and just went. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, my forehead gets a little taller every year. And I told my wife, there's going to be a point where I'm not going to fight it. Like, like at this point, it, it still grows long enough and there's no like patches up top or anything like that. I'm totally cool. But if that hits like my ear line, like right there, it's going. I, I'm I'm not fighting that battle. Um, I'm not going to be that guy with you know hair that hangs down to here from like his calic. You know. Yeah, it's, my wife it's said not a good it, luck. If it does disappear from the top, I'm not doing the George Carlin with the bald on the top and the little. Ponytail. Right. Not not doing the Picard. Yeah. yeah, the Picard. Well, I would be a Picard with a ponytail. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she calls it George Carlin. You might be too old. I forget that. Oh, no, I, 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 know, I know Carlin. I know okay. Carlin. Yeah. The seven words you can't say on TV. The, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. No, I, I'm a huge Carlin fan. I'm a huge stand-up fan in general. Uh, yes. Oh, Richard, man. Richard Lewis. I mean, yeah. You know, take, my son take me is back. really into a lot of them. And, of course, at 13, you discover Mitch Hedberg again. And it's like... <laughs> <laughs> I He's used to funny, be a big no Richard Hedberg fan. I still am, but I used to too. Yeah, I still am, but I used to too. So he's so great. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, uh, patch your DNS server as soon as a patch is available. Is a patch available? I don't. Oh remember. yeah, it, was, okay. it came out with Patch Tuesday. So that's right. That's um, right. The, the patch okay. is available, and it also requires a reboot, which is a super annoying. Um, about Windows services. So uh, my yes. my staff was not thrilled about this. They've been rebooting servers since Tuesday and Oof. telling customers we're forcing them reboot out of cycle. Normally we'd wait, but this patch is too critical not to wait. Yeah. Um, so they were grumbly today about yeah. doing it. So. Yeah, and it's, it's the same kind of thing. When a patch comes out, they also usually disclose why they're patching. And yeah. so in cases like this, the exploit gets released on the same day the patch does. That's why, circling back to our earlier conversation, patch your servers. <laughs> always, always patch your servers. Gaming PCs, ah, eh, whatever, I don't care. But please patch your servers. Yep. And we have, I mean, one client, I think there's 17 servers that had been patched at one client that we have. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, they're not going to be happy. I'm like, I know they're not. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't have a better answer. I said, but do you know how unhappy they will be? Yeah. <laughs> like, as inconvenient as this is, do you right. want to know the consequences the other way? <laughs> right. You have 17 servers. We would have a nightmare of, I mean, I know we, we have backups of all of them, but that's not the point. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you want the 24 to 48 hours of us, you know, restoring those backups? And yeah. Yeah. No one wants to go through that. So can you deal with 20 minutes? Can we, can we, can we level with that? Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, minor inconvenience. Um, but, uh, it, it was, it was the grumble of the office today. So that's. <laughs> <laughs> do we have to dad it's how i feel when they're like i know you said i'm like guys come on you know it's a 10 out of 10 so. <laughs> right right it's a three we can let it slide a couple of weeks schedule it on saturday you know 10 out of 10 yeah we're doing it today sorry yeah it's cb 10 10 it's patch tuesday it's the awful patch tuesday that it is so yes exactly uh, and uh speaking of bad microsoft things uh <laughs> Luckily, I'm not an Outlook customer, but I'm sure you have plenty of them. <laughs> yeah, myself, I'm a G Suite user. Um, and it's funny because I've been, I use Thunderbird 
back in the 90s like or, yeah. uh, what was it then it would have been part of the netscape pr uh, product line before it became its own separate standalone right so i have never actually been an outlook user myself but of yeah. course i've always supported clients over the last 20 years that have been and boy I, i'm the exact same way i've been using thunderbird since you know, probably 2002 i want to say is when i jumped on Mm -hmm. And then after that, um, I went when I used to host my mail server, I went to Squirrel Mail. So anyone who's been around for a while knew Squirrel Mail. Then from Squirrel Mail, I went to Roundcube Web Mail, which was popular for a little while. I used to host that. And then finally, um, I gave up and surrendered my life over to G Suite because it just got to be too unmanageable to manage all these mail servers. So. Right. Uh, but a lot of clients still use the Microsoft one, except for today, they weren't doing anything. They were just complaining a lot. Yeah, no mail was going through today because, yeah. well, Outlook was down globally. Globally. So it was just a mess. Uh, and it was, well, it was, it was a double-ended here. So we had the Outlook broken, and we also had an update that broke local installs of Outlook. So. Right. <laughs> I have um I use Reddit a lot and I have the multi Reddit set up and I have yeah. like a multi Reddit just for all the tech ones like our yeah. sysadmin our MSP and it was funny because all the list of every every different subreddit was another complaint about Outlook. Well, <laughs> someone going ah yeah, what is this? And of course, someone figured out how to run it. You had to run with a, a command line switch. There was a way to force update it with some command line parameter. Someone found yeah. to, to get it fixed. Of course, that I disseminated that data internally to my staff, but hey this is the way we're going to do it and we're going to get these people back up and running and yeah yep. <laughs> so you had to reboot their servers and their outlook wouldn't work what the hell man why, why do we even hire you i don't even hire you all you do is reboot my sewers and fix my outlook gosh sewer sewer i said sewers servers so <laughs> <laughs> same difference it's microsoft sad. server microsoft sewer we're going to go it's it there's it, nuance <laughs> yeah <laughs> Exactly. So yeah, um, on the same day that, or a day after they disclosed uh, a 10 out of 10 DNS error that could give up all domain admin credentials and you no longer own your servers, uh, Outlook itself went down globally as far as Office 365 and Outlook refused to launch on client machines because of an update that, well, wasn't tested thoroughly enough. And so pretty much bricked, what was it, like 85% of installs or something like that? <laughs> Some incredible number. <laughs> right. If only Microsoft still had a QC department for all of their updates. Oh. I know. I mean, weird. It'd be weird if they had that. I mean, well, yeah. they do. It's us. It's us now, right? Yeah. In 2014, it's it was their internal department of about 2,000 people, but now it's us. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Oh, I see someone likes Fiat. Fix it again, Tony. <laughs> Hey, careful, they're a Chrysler product now. Well, that, well, worse than that, they own the Chrysler product. They own Chrysler, right? <laughs> oh just, God, it's spreading. It's spreading. <laughs> I know because, you know, it, we're the Motor City and we lost one of our big three. I mean, when yeah. we got or Fiat owns Chrysler, so. Yeah. It was actually really funny when the Germans owned it because um, when uh, Daimler had bought it, they came here and they were like, you build cars here? Like, this is the grossest, dirtiest place. Like, the Mercedes people were appalled. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. And what's funny is the best thing they ever did out of that was the 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 Chrysler 300, which was an SLK chassis and engine. And that, mm -hmm. that's the best that ever came out of that partnership. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and, and fun story. I was, uh, I was fixing, we were working on my friend's Mustang last night and, uh, one of our friends is uh, another friend is from Yazaki, North America, and they're the ones that built all the Chrysler wire harnesses. And I, he said he was he was complaining because he had been there for so long. I'm like, were you the one? Because do you, you remember when the Prowler came out? Yes. The, all the wiring harnesses caught on fire, yep. and I got it was fun to talk about the backstory of why they caught on fire. I'm like, you guys designed it. He goes, yeah, but Chrysler screwed it up. <laughs> it's like <laughs> <a> blame game. <laughs> Isn't that always how it is? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was fun it was fun to reminisce about that because i mean that's from uh, god the prowler i don't remember what year that's from but it's, that's an older car there's still a handful of them around here but it's not a recent vehicle so what well, was that 98 to 02 04 something like that they made them yeah Ish. something like that yeah that doesn't seem like that long ago but i'm like oh yeah that that that's was prior to my kids birth 20 20 plus years ago yeah it was, yeah, that's it was right. a while it was ago, years ago. <laughs> I, I was still in school at that point man <laughs> yeah so um, I think we got at least a little bit more tech news before we dive into the car topics. So. Yes. Uh, so SpaceX is finally giving some information on the next step to start up their beta program, which yeah. I am all about wanting to sign up for their beta program. I, I, I have been trumpeting this from the beginning. I want to try this. Yeah, and they put they let you put your address in, so I did that right away. I put my yep. address in. I'm like, hey, this is cool. I threw that in there, and I was like, you know, I'm excited. I want to see... Um, better access it oddly um, semi-related but uh, google is it project loon is that the one with the balloons where they're providing balloon yeah access? yeah um google actually has that uh launched in a couple of places i believe over africa right now so yeah they also tested it over puerto rico after the hurricane yeah i know they yeah. tested it there too yep. so I, I like all these other options that are coming out uh for potential access you know because mm-hmm. If Comcast were to, I don't know, file for bankruptcy and die a horrible death, would anyone miss them? <laughs> I know I wouldn't. Yeah, they, they've not been the kindest company. Um, so and and I they're like, who, who's, who's bringing you all these zeros and ones that I'm broadcasting right now. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a Comcastic user. Uh, my friend worked for Comcast for a while, and I got all the fun inside stories from him about stuff of managing and teams. Yeah. He he. Um, moved around from place to place. One of the most horrible things, I, I tried to get him to go on YouTube. And he's like, I, I like my job enough that I won't go on YouTube and say this. But what he did tell me was <laughs> that I, he Ooh. said, I don't care if you repeat it, but I won't admit to it. Um, <laughs> when he, he used to be up here in the Detroit area and he transferred to another city um, that had exclusively Comcast. Like there was no other game in town. Right. They gave him half the technicians with less wage and he was management. And he's like, how am I supposed to get services done with one idiots <laughs> he goes he goes you barely pay these guys of a minimum wage he goes i used to have really good paid techs up here in michigan and they're like yeah what are they gonna do they can't switch that was like right. corporate's verbal on him on the phone and he's like oh i get it i'm just like if you get there next week that's how it goes we have a legalized monopoly here and yeah we don't have Why to pay a, more money we Why don't have to pay prevailing wage because well who's going to switch to someone else there is no one else so there is no one else we own this town that's exactly right <laughs> Um, my, like my town, mob. right. My town is very similar in that we're probably 90% Comcast. Um, there is CenturyLink fiber about a mile away from me. And I'm really, really bummed out by that, mm. <laughs> that the, uh, but all, all of our, our runs are, are terrestrial. They're, they're all underground. And so running cable here is exorbitantly expensive, even more so than running new poles. Um, and so there's not going to be any expansion anytime soon. My my development was built in the 70s, 
and the infrastructure has been the same since then. Yeah. So <laughs> what's the incentive for a company to come in and bring a, you know, a, a new ISP in when they can run on the same RG6 cable that they've been running on for 25 years? Yep. There is none. And we're lucky here because we don't really have as much data caps because um, it's a competitive market. And Comcast, mm -hmm. the reason they ask for your zip code is because they do predatory pricing. Mm -hmm. um, their pricing is adjusted based on are we a monopoly or not? <laughs> right. That, no, that's exactly right. And Verizon Files is the same way. CenturyLink is the same way. Charter is the same way. Cox is the same way. You go down the list yep. of every single ISP. If they own the market, they charge you more. If they don't own the market, they, all of a sudden they have to compete. Suddenly you get a better deal and you get better service and you get, you know, all these other, yeah. Um, I, I lived in a, in a place, my last place was a competitive market. I had three ISPs to choose from. Um, now only one of them could give me gig, but two of them could give me 250. And so absolutely I could switch and I could go to someone else. And my service was extraordinary. Um, you know, I, I had great customer service. I had, you know, same day or next day response in, in most cases. And then all of a sudden I'm a Comcast customer and it's wait three hours on hold and we'll get to you next Tuesday. And, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And, you know, it's the South Park, you know, ripping down the shirt flaps and, oh, your service is interrupted. Oh, that's too bad. Oh. Yeah. Yep. It's, I'm, I'm happy because both where the new house that I if everything goes well, we'll be purchasing um, and my office are both in, and even where I live right now, we're all in competitive areas where there's nice. um, three places to choose. We have three different um, competitors to choose from. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's great. They, they are all fighting for a uh, race to the bottom, which is fine by me because right. consumers win in that standpoint. Right. Race to the bottom, you win, not them. So yeah, not them. So I'm happy with that. <laughs> And we have some international people chiming in on chat that I have $25 a month, one gig both ways. Shut up. <laughs> I Shut know up you do. You really run infrastructure in your country. This is yes. America. We, this we is... do it completely wrong. But somehow we pay right for less service because we have that freedom. We have the freedom to do things stupidly. <laughs> we got to express that. Sometimes it's free as in freedom, as in F-R-E-D-U-M-B occasionally, but Hey, yeah, freedom. Yeah. It, it makes for some great fail videos. <laughs> Absolutely, it does. <laughs> There's, you know, the 4th of July is a celebration of our freedom and where the next wave of videos come from. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> there's always, you know, July 3rd, when you start with 10 fingers and July 5th, <laughs> when you're part of Fail Army and, you know, <laughs> One digit less. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, beer number two. I've got a Big Tree IPA. It's a double IPA. Um, and I have no idea where Big Tree is at. Uh, Missouri. Columbia, Missouri. It's a 7.6%. So technically a double by about 0.1%. 7.5 and up is a, is a double IPA. Smells good. Looks good too. Yeah, I only have. It's okay. I, I didn't grab but one beer because this is seven percent. <laughs> yeah. So I decided one was enough. <laughs> you know, you know, I think about it. Yeah, it's seven point seven percent. But because these are our Grand Rapids, I honestly don't know if they have distribution all the way on your side of the world. So yeah. 
we do have some some very unique bottle shops that do sh ship in from across the country and around the world. Uh, there's one about four and a half miles from my house that is amazing. Um, it's the size of like a neighborhood grocery store. Um, like uh, it's probably about 3,000, 3,500 square feet, give or take. And it's wall to wall with beer. Uh, so it's a great place to visit. Um, and prices are good and you can get just about anything you want there. Um, I, I get regionally distributed beers from all over the country there. Uh, yeah, yeah, this the, one's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I see IP 7.7. <laughs> Looking at, reading the chat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, that's yeah, just John. You can ignore him. Okay. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's probably, a, you know, Michigan became oddly very quickly a, a place with a lot of craft breweries. And of course, mm -hmm. um, your state was already known for a lot of craft breweries prior to then. So it's what we uh, do. Interesting competition because <laughs> now we have like two, we're both from places that have a large selection of brew. So, yes. Yeah. We're both from kind of very hipstery areas, you know, yep. D D Detroit, Portland, and you could kind of throw Houston into that mix as well. Very, very we'll say forward thinking hipsterish, you know, a lot of culture there. And we were talking about this before the stream yeah. um, that uh, people accuse me of being a hipster. It's like, I'm not a hipster, but God, I love their food and drink. Oh, I know. <laughs> like if I know it's a hipster, I'm like, there's going to be craft beers and food. That's fancy. I'm yeah. caught me in. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a coffee bar by day and speakeasy by night near me. That's freaking incredible. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I love like that. We were, uh, and if anyone wants to Google it, you can look up Rusted Crow Distillery Detroit. They have such a cool style. They're one of the neat places that specifically brews uh, um, really cool craft drinks and things like that. Yeah. And they got the whole, they're more of a rockabilly feel combined with steampunk. So yeah. you, you sent me a link to their site beforehand. I think that that uh, Roadster is actually the uh, used to be a Captain Morgan Roadster that they converted because I remember that car from like 10 years ago. And um, I swear it's the same car. It might be. We have a lot of rat rods here. So we yeah. have huge amounts. But um, particularly that rat rod looks okay. identical to a rat rod that Captain Morgan did. And in fact, I think it was in an episode of Roadkill uh, over on YouTube um, that, mm. uh, that they did like, is a rat rod cool or would you rather drive like a Lamborghini? And so they did a, a Lamborghini yeah. versus rat rod kind of thing. I swear it's the same car uh, because it, it was this slam to the ground, roof cut off, you know, you're driving like this kind of thing. I swear it's the same car. <laughs> it's It's been one of those debates because I really... Like I've done um, muscle cars, but I haven't done a rat rod. And that's something I, yeah. I love them. I was, I, there's so many car shows. We're the Motor City. So we have a massive, we have like it, sometimes on the car show weekends, it's a, a matter of picking which one I want to go to because they're all occurring at the same time, but in different cities. So, right. It's, yeah, um, we have quite a few cruise-ins, uh, probably not to your extent, but we do have quite a few cruise-ins in the area. We've got a couple of rally events that, that happened, uh, happened throughout the year. Um, I live... 15 miles from a drag strip. Um, oh, cool. So yeah, uh, I, I do uh, like and revel kind of in the, in the car culture. Um, it's and now that I'm, now that I'm full time and I kind of work for myself, I'd like to get a little bit further into it because <laughs> uh, it's, it's one of the things that kind of went by the wayside is I haven't had time to work on cars in the last, you know, five, six, seven years. 
So. Yeah. And hanging out with the car clubs is uh, just a good time. Like they're, they're right. generally always a lot of fun. Um, the police turned a blind eye in some of the areas uh, <laughs> are, that we have here to the street racing. So <laughs> as long as it doesn't get hands, as long as no one crashes, they're like, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> See, we don't have any semi-sanctioned street racing here. That that's all pretty pretty not kosher around these parts. But uh, yeah, not well, that I've not that I've ever not. But, um, but it's so big here. If you look up uh, Vice News Sunday Funday, they came to Detroit and filmed the illegal street lacing, like the highly illegal stuff, and just how big it is. They block off freeways to drag race, and that's when they got in trouble. Um, yeah. So, but it, it happens still all the time. It's it, it's pretty wild. I've I've um, I've been to those. I've attended them. It's it was too fun not to. I took the Tesla. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have one more story to get into or oh, one yeah. more topic of conversation yes. rather before we get right, into let's car get talk. in because this is a great on cars let's get to the topics <laughs> yeah let, let, let's get to this one um because uh you did a video on this recently and i was actually considered doing a, a, a video as well but i i loved your take on it and i loved the direction that it took and and actually this morning i, ca I came across a twitter thread that really kind of resonated with me because it's something from the the vendor side of the industry that shouldn't be tolerated um so we're talking about ethics of running a youtube channel or running an independent review channel or independent journalism um so this all kind of started with uh with supersaf uh over on twitter posting a and of course firefox crashed so i don't have the uh the tweet up right now but basically posting a you do a review on a product and give a positive review okay, how much should they pay you for that review? You give a negative review on the product, how much should the competition pay you to slam that product? And you don't say anything, why do you hate that product? And that was Marquise Brownlee's response to, to that tweet. And and that kind of thing, even at even at our level, you know, kind of the middling, like we're full time, but we're still small cookies kind of, kind of YouTubers. Yeah. Um, that, we still get accused of shilling. I've been accused of shilling as small as 30,000 subscribers. Yeah. And and if you think anyone gives a flying what I think <laughs> at thirty thousand subscribers, um, no one's paying me money. No one no one cares what I think. I couldn't even get product to review at thirty thousand subscribers, let alone you know money to get a give a positive opinion about it. But the ethics of being an independent journalist and an independent creator on YouTube, there's some some weird areas in there 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 there's always accusations flying about well were you paid for this review um and i think you and i both run our channels the exact same way is that no <laughs> yeah it's um, simple. no I, I can tell you exactly the dollar amount that i've received from any company that i've ever worked with on youtube and the dollar amount is 1125 dollars. that's how much i've been paid with by for vendors that i work with directly and it wasn't for a review. It was for number one, sponsorship to CES to pay for a hotel room so me and Steve could go and cover CES this year. And in exchange, we visited their booths and did video content on them. It And it wasn't even like, give us positive content or give us like 20 minutes of coverage. It was visit us as you would anyone else. That's all that was required is you give us some kind of coverage. Um, and then I've also done a pre-roll ad for for Fractal Design. I, I did a, a series of, of pre-roll ads. I've also given Fractal Design uh, some 
some harsh criticism over the years and they don't care because they're a company that improves their products when they receive criticism. Um, but literally $1,125, that's how much money I've received from vendors that I work with. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same way for me. Like I get actually, as my channel's grown, and I'm sure this happens to you, you get emails about people wanting to sponsor this or pay you for this. I get a lot of them want to pay me for a solid tutorial because I have more tutorial videos on my channel. So like, Hey, I'd like you to create a tutorial for my product and then put it on your channel. I'm like, mm -hmm. it doesn't really work that way with me. Right. I mean, in earlier times I, I thought about it a little bit, like, how could I do this? So I just say it at the beginning, but I'm also someone who, if I don't like their product, I'm not going to do it anyways. So like, I just did the review as a normal review and it feels better to me that way because I said everything I wanted to say, because one of the things right away was if you do this, here's my editorial comments of how I want you to present it. And I'm like right there. That's, that's the dividing for me. That's how I know I right. do the things I want to do. Um, and there's one thing, one, I like integrity. That is truly the first part. Second, I'm kind of lazy and I just want to do things my own <laughs> right. way. And right. I'm, I'm big headed and I'm kind of like, I'm so broken right now, 17 years of working for myself, I couldn't work for anyone else. So it would feel don't like- Don't you tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. That's why I'm the last guy. And do you know I'm who I am? Years later, <laughs> here I am. So um, right. yeah, I try to make sure uh, that, I, you know, in, as I've grown this channel and I realize I crossed some, you know, bigger numbers, I'm like, okay, there's a lot of people. And I feel very heartfelt for this because I, I know that I'm very blessed in the fact that I have uh, a $30,000 server sent to me from Supermicro sitting on my desk. And I had a $60,000 server sent to me from IX Systems for a review. And I had to send these back. I mean, I don't get them right. for free. Um, I got them for free to review, but they do go back. But either way, but I'm like, you know, someone may make a decision on this. That's a non-insignificant financial decision they may make. And let's say even with a smaller unified thing, even if it is 150 bucks for an access point, right. someone's going to spend $150. I have to be honest because I would feel terrible if someone, if I said it was good and it wasn't good and they right. bought it based on what would have been essentially a lie. Obviously, your credibility doesn't hold up over time doing that. Um, but I still would feel bad. So it's really starts with ethics and integrity and moves down from there to say, you know, I, I should be honest with these people, whether I got it for free or not. Cause I, someone had commented uh, in, in the comments on that video said, well, if you get it for free and you get to keep it, you're always biased. I'm like, no, that isn't necessarily true because um, one companies mail me things that I never review. I just right. stuff shows up at my staff. Like, what's this? I'm like, I don't know. I guess they want me to talk about it. I don't right. like it. It's stupid. And it's, we have a shelf full of stupid, or I give it away to one of the staff. I'm like, take this. I, I, and they'll, they'll use it. They'll go, this is stupid. They're just trying to get reviews. I'm like, yeah. Right. So I'm not they're, even they're, they're trying to get airtime is what they're doing. Yeah. Um, I have I have a shelf full of product I will probably never use. Now, I, I'm the kind of person I hate to throw hardware away. And, mm -hmm. and, and I, um, even hardware that's like junk, I, I have a hard time like throwing it in the dumpster. I want to set it in the dumpster because I like hardware. It's why I got into this game. It's why I do what I do. But um, you have to realize my YouTube channel became what it is because I reviewed a lot of like knockoff Chinese motherboards and things like that. So the amount of crap that I get sent that is this no-name heatsink or AIO cooler or fans or what um, RGB kits, it's like I will never ever use these in a build or maybe I will but I'm certainly not gonna do a video on them. And and if you think airtime can be bought by sending me product, 
I, I've got a lifetime worth of videos that I could shoot on, on a tutorial for how to use a service inside of a, a of a server or, or whatever else. Yeah. You know, I, I don't need this product to do this video. Um, <laughs> now I will admit this has become a stupid game cause I'm on the third one. Now I I'm looking, I keep, I look over to this way because I have these, um, USB C portable monitors that plug in, mm. um, they all seem to be made by the same manufacturers, but they put a different logo on them. And they've now, I got my third one. And <laughs> so I keep reviewing it. And I, I completely disclose that in a video. Like they keep sending me these and they want you to buy them. And here's a quick review of it because they're knockoffs. And the one I'm using right now is in every way identical to the MSI. I think they're just selling an MSI with a different logo on it. Really? And after I did the two reviews, a third company reached out to me and I'm going to do another review probably Friday. Um, it's another, they're like five minute videos. And I say, another company sent me another one. <laughs> and that's how I started out. <laughs> and it's like, I'm not, I'm completely telling you, they sent me to keep and part of it's logistics. There's no point in sending it back because they're cheap. It's like 130, $140. That's exactly right. Um, so they don't really want them back and they want, and they just want me to plug the name of it. And they always have some weird name on them. And, yeah. but I'm, but the fact that I'm very upfront about this, um, that I'm showing you and they are legit products you may or may want to produce. And right. I even show you the shortcomings of them. One of them is the one problem they have compared to the name brand is every time I unplug it, you, the brightness goes down to 30%. Every time it doesn't save any settings. You have to, every time you plug it in, you reset the settings on it. Oh man. It, but it's a hundred dollars less than in the MSI. So here's a question: Do you spend the a hundred dollars less for this one, or do you spend the MSI? I can't tell the difference between it and an MSI. Right. But I leave you as the audience. I, I tell you the facts. Here's the things: You have to turn the brightness up. Yeah. And and you know to some. To some people, that might be enough of an annoyance to go, I want to spend $100 more and get the name brand yeah. product that does this. And the reason I started covering these, these knockoff boards is because there, there's a couple of different people that this market hits. Number one, the people who can't afford in the United States, you know, a brand new motherboard, you know, a, a brand new B450 or B550 motherboard at, you know, 110, 150 bucks, and then a processor to go in at 200, 250. When it's like, well, this old Xeon chip gets... 75% of the performance, but you're also paying 20% of the cost. And yeah. there's certainly something to that. And then there's also countries in the world where you legit cannot get brand new products. You know, there, there's there's Russia, there's, you know, Brazil. I have a huge following in Brazil because, because I, was I say, do Brazil's these kind one of stuff. Of them. Yeah, it's weird. Um, but it's one of the areas that you legitimately cannot buy brand new products unless you spend about four times what I would spend in the US on them. Uh, versus these Xeon boards from AliExpress, I'm paying the same amount that they would pay for them. And so it, it, it becomes a market that they can access. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's, it's this really weird thing where, um, well, I guess I should say, I started my channel and immediately I, I said, I'm I'm going to do this right. I'm going to have ethics. I'm not getting in this to make money. And I, and I certainly didn't get into YouTube to make money. I, I got into it to go, maybe eventually it can pay for my hobby, you know, because I, I've jumped around from various different hobbies from, from you know, playing in bands to uh, doing photography and shooting weddings on the side to, you know, contracting out server work to you know what, I want to play with some gaming rigs. So let's show what my gaming rigs are and let's play with a couple of things and see if that kind of pays off on YouTube. And uh, lo and behold, it kind of turned into a career. 
But I said, my integrity is worth everything because if I'm going to be an independent journalist, which is basically what a YouTuber tech reviewer yep. is, um, your word has to be worth more than anything. You, you can't buy my opinion. And, you know, giving me a couple hundred dollars to give you a positive review is you're not going to get it. And so I've never taken a dollar from anyone. I've um, of the name brand companies, I've never been offered money. Um, but, uh, you know, from from some uh, less heard of brands, I certainly have been. Uh, I've been asked, you know, what's your what's your review fee uh, for, for getting a product on your channel? It's like I don't have one. And, uh, and that's kind of a, a foreign language to some companies because they're used to spending, you know, $2,000 for you to produce a video, a positive review for their products. Yeah. Um, and it's just weird. And but, I think part of it, they know that because that's why they ask, what's your review fee? You're not the first person to ask. They kind of expect it. Like, so we know there's a lot right. of this going on in the market. If they're asking what the review fee is, people are charging a review fee. Yes. <laughs> and that's a problem. That Right. Uh, the, the problem with that is people go, well, shouldn't you be paid for your time? Well, they're not paying me for my time. They're sending me a product for me to review and I make money with that product on my own. I make money from the traffic that my YouTube video generates. And, um, and in some third party respects, I, I make, you know, Amazon affiliate sales or eBay sales or AliExpress right. sales or you know, whatever your affiliate links are for a positive review. And some people could even call that a bit of a bias. I don't consider that because it's never stopped me from giving a product a bad review, you know? And I'll still post the Amazon affiliate link and by God, people still buy things for saying this for products that I absolutely slam and it boggles I, my mind. And, <laughs> and funny thing is, um, I remember Linus talking about that. He He's actually, cause he looks at the analytics. And I remember him discussing that. He yeah. goes, I've hated products and can't believe the volume of sales that product had that I hated. <laughs> Same here. I, I've I've reviewed a couple of products and I went, this is absolute garbage. I don't know why they're selling it. I wouldn't pay $20 for this. And my, my affiliate link uh, analytics come in the next month and I sold 70 of them at like 50 bucks a piece. It's like, what the hell is that? I said, don't buy this thing. And you I all said, don't it. buy it. And you used my link to buy it, which means I made more money from that than. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. But uh, today there was a Twitter post from a, a fellow YouTuber, fellow reviewer, um, uh, Tech Team GB. Um, I've seen a couple of his videos off and on. Um, didn't really follow him, but uh, but he's posted some some good stuff in the past, and he he makes beautiful videos. Um, but uh, he had a post that said, "I normally don't name and shame companies and their less than ideal behaviors, but this one has gone too far." On Monday, I posted a review of an MSI laptop, which had a number of flaws. The display was poor, thermals were terrible, and the trackpad felt like it was broken. And I went and watched his review, and his complaints were all 100% legitimate. Um, any kind of 100% load on the CPU, 95C right off the bat, and it held there, and it thermal throttled the whole time you were using it. Uh, the trackpad had five to eight millimeters of travel in it. I mean, it, it was like not reinforced, and you'd press oh. the button down and have... Yeah, it was terrible by even like 2000 standards for trackpads on laptops, let alone like a modern trackpad, you know, since Apple modernized it with the, the large glass pads and everything else. Um, and, uh, and the screen was not a good display and the things that he criticized it for were legit. I mean, it's a budget gaming laptop that he reviewed, but even, even budget laptops should have certain standards and this certainly didn't meet them. 
And he goes on to say, prior to posting the review, I contacted MSI uh, to see if they could confirm my my flaws that I came up with. And, and I will certainly do that with companies as well. I will contact them if I'm going to give a bad review and I will say, do these flaws exist in your product? Or did I receive a poor product? Um, and I've had a company ship me out a second sample because uh, this has happened once with an AIO water cooler and it's happened one other time with a motherboard um, where I received a product that was not performing to the standards that they thought. And when I received the second product, that second product worked fine. And and it happens from time to time, especially with very early runs on products. So as a reviewer, it's my job to deliver the truth, but even then I still need to give a company a time to respond if this product is, if this issue that I've discovered is going to be a one-off issue. And so still completely valid, still completely within the realm of reviewing. But uh, he contacted them and, and said, I held off my review for a number of weeks uh, for them to test their their products and they they never responded instead they tried to pay me to not post my review of this laptop i declined and posted it anyway i had a call earlier today from the msi rep uh and asked me to remove the word disappointing from my review which again i declined because <laughs> the review was disappointing i'm disappointed this laptop did not perform up to the dollar value that you placed on it um and uh uh, they were then threatened to re to repeal all sponsorships and and review samples in the future from MSI. He thought that would be the end of it. Later on, he received a phone call from AMD uh, because MSI had had called AMD and said, "Would you please get this guy to remove this this review because it's reflecting poorly on your on your product?" No, it doesn't reflect poorly on the 4800H, which is inside the laptop. It reflects poorly on MSI and the thermal controls of the laptop. Um, and, uh, and he points out, I'm no hardware unboxed or gamers nexus, but this is shameful behavior by MSI. Um, and, uh, and then he clarifies at the bottom, just to be clear, AMD was on my side. They did contact me, but after I talked to them, they said, yeah, those are legitimate complaints. We're on your side. So AMD's off the hook in my opinion, but MSI certainly is not. And, no. uh, and like I said, this, this whole conversation kind of started with that super staff tweet of, you know, if you give a product a po positive review, you are obviously being paid by them. And if you give them a negative review, you're obviously being paid by someone else. And while that has certainly never been true for myself, I, I have never even been offered. And I don't know whether to feel relieved or insulted by that, but I've never <laughs> even been offered a cash payment to, to not post a review or to take something well, down or change the language or. And that's not my hope too, is I put that video out there. I embedded it, it's on our website. Mm -hmm. So I can easily use it as a reply to anyone with that inquiry. But right. for those that research my channel, they're going to be able to uh, come across that and maybe not bother with trying to engage me with like, hey, can we pay for a review or something like that? Right. You know, and, and I don't mind. And I have the same level of interaction with the companies to make sure that things are um, going well. And especially when like I'll, I'll use IX systems as an example as well. So yes. in my video, I talked about Aruba. When they sent me equipment but with ix systems <clears throat> they did send me some notes to go with it not to influence my review but you're talking about a server that costs over fifty thousand dollars so they said these are some of the cool highlights about our fifty thousand dollar server right. which are basically ways you should focus on that and that, that's helpful that's not influencing my review these are legit features um of the type of you know interconnects they have the backplane they had they're they're 
they're, you know, esoteric details that you don't know just by looking at it because right. some of the stuff I reviewed when you get into enterprise networking or enterprise storage, you're talking about very high end details that matter a lot because you're not just buying something. This is scaled up. This isn't just buying a consumer gaming laptop. It's going, someone's going to buy. And, and sometimes when we've worked out sales, more than one of these $50,000 servers, they'll buy right. multiple and build out an entire data center with them. So, right. Um, right as a reviewer um especially for brand new products i do often receive review notes or or reviewer's guide of these are the features that we're trying to sell along with this product and these are these are the distinguishing features of it and and things we think you should feature we you should focus on as a reviewer and that's totally fine and i'm still totally free to go my own direction on it but especially when you get into the higher end products like ix systems and things like that where it's Forty to sixty thousand dollars sometimes for some standalone for you servers. Um, you need to know what their target market is for that. Because me as a reviewer, I'm looking at it from my own viewpoint of my own. I would put this into this instance, or I see it fitting into this circumstance that I would sell to a customer. When that might not be the target market that they're that they're aiming for. And so knowing the point of view of the manufacturer and the OEM of where they see this being implemented does help you get into the mindset. Um, because I've looked at products before and, and I've looked at marketing materials and I've looked at price points and I've given poor reviews based on marketing alone. Um, one that I can remember right off the bat is uh, the Sound Blaster G6. I loved that sound card. But it was $150 and they were touting it as a portable audiophile amplifier. But portable to me in the context meant I'm going to take this on a plane with me and enjoy, you know, my audiophile headphones on a plane. It's $150 for the amp. It didn't work without the laptop. And so am I going to haul this brick around with me (laughs) to plug in my audiophile headphones on a plane to listen to for two hours? Or am I just going to plug my, my headphones into an iPhone and call it a day? Yeah. And that's kind of what I settled on was this is absurd for that price point. Now, they came out with the Sound Blaster X3 recently, which is a much larger product, has basically like two and a half times the footprint, but they didn't market it to be portable. They marketed it to be a gaming audiophile headphone that could drive pretty good quality studio grade headphones, but had some gaming features to it and was $30 less. It was 120 bucks. And I went, this is a product that knows where it fits in the marketplace now. Um, and so just based on marketing materials, I have judged products entirely on their usefulness based on what they've told me. And like you said, when you get into those enterprise products, you need to know exactly where the market focuses at to determine whether or not it's a good product. Yeah, there, it just becomes a lot of nuance to it. So, you, mm-hmm. you know, the target audience, the target market. Um, and of course, the when you have that kind of budget, you put some cool features in there. Right. <laughs> better wipe my ass while it's at it <laughs> yeah so that's exactly <laughs> yeah there was um there was some neat features about the way they use the ram for the data access and things like yeah. that it was like uh, it, it's always fun playing with that because i can't remember now off the top of my head but i think it's over 120 gig backplane for the interconnects for the failovers like there's some really fast stuff they put in there. <laughs> yeah. For those who don't know the IX systems, uh, the reason you buy IX systems, which comes with TrueNAS Enterprise uh, by default, um, is because it is pretty much the only fully redundant system for a file server you will ever buy. 
Yeah. Uh, there, there's two motherboards. There's what four power supplies. There, there's duplicates on everything, including duplicate interconnects to the backplane. There's duplicates for the backplane itself. There, there's so many. Uh, when when you think about like layers of failure and and things that can possibly go wrong inside of a server, they've doubled everything except the hard drives themselves. And in fact, if you raid Tenet, you can double the hard drives themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so. and, and it was it's interesting because um one of the demos I have is pulling out the motherboard while it's running. Now I asked permission right. from the engineers to do this. Yeah. And uh, they said don't do it twice because it will scar the uh interconnects inside because you're gonna <laughs> shut it. So I removed a live motherboard, not powered it off, like right. left it powered and slid it out just, to show that the iSCSI extents would still um, will keep on working. So right. <laughs> that's an impressive um, amount of, and that's the kind of failover you want because, you know, things never fail nice. They fail catastrophically. Yes. Um, and, and remember, RAID is not a backup. Raid is not a backup, and uh, someone pointed out QNAP, both uh, QNAP and um, Synology, which I have used quite a few Synologies. I guess that doesn't exactly count as using other software, but it does count as using a different Raid system. We still sell a lot of these Synologies. It's one of the product lines that we do uh, dive into a lot. Uh, But Synology has a new system that's got some failovers. Now, I have not really tested them to see if they're robust as the AX systems. My initial feeling is they're not. They're certainly not in the same price range as the AX systems as well. They are right. a lot cheaper. Um, we actually have one uh, that's going to be coming to us for review. Uh, they don't do review units the same as Synology. That's all I'll say. That's it, it, it's, <laughs> it's been a long process to get my hands on. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of complexities in that. Yes. But uh, yeah, we're aligned on a lot of the, and, and for those of you that are may not know me or may not know my channel, all that mm-hmm. stuff's posted on my channel, my content ethics, I have a statement on my website mm-hmm. and a statement on my, it's like the two videos ago is what I had posted that. So, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've never officially posted an ethics statement, but I've talked about it a number of times, at least here on the live show about how I do reviews. And the way I do reviews is you send me the product and I will post a review. And that's the end of our discussion. Um, If I have problems, if I have things that I think are going to be one-off to this product, I will contact you. I will let you know if it's going to be a negative review beforehand. But you don't get editorial authority over my review. My review is my review. And uh, and I've... I've irritated a couple companies. I've had a couple come back to me and say, we we don't like that you took it that direction. I said, well, that's the direction your price point or your marketing or you know where I saw this fitting into the marketplace. That's the review it got. So sorry, you know, but yeah. And those companies still work with me. You know, it's it's not like I'm I'm afraid of them not. Um because I know my work is solid and I know my my work is backed up by either the benchmark numbers I produce or the results that I give. Um so but yeah, you'll you'll never you'll never see a video that says review with any monetary ties to it if it says review on it they sent me the product and the reason they don't get it back is because like you said logistically it's more expensive for them to take it back than it is to just give me the damn product yeah they don't Um, care that much it's already been used you already have it they don't really it's already been used do they want to send it to the refurbisher and then sell it refurb no they don't they'd rather just be done with it and hey maybe you use it in a second video and that's free marketing for them 
yep. is kind of the way they look at it. Um, and especially when you get into cases, you know, um, I have dozens and dozens of PC cases. And and typically I use a case once and I try to use it twice just to get the most use out of it that I can. I'll feature a build video or I'll feature a case review or, you know, airflow review or whatever else. And then they sit in my garage. And the problem is you can't get rid of cases because no one ever upgrades cases. No one ever needs a case unless they're building a new system. You can't sell them on eBay because shipping is more than the case is worth. Yep. And and so they just stack up in your garage. So if anyone needs a case, I have like two dozen of them sitting in my garage right now. Yeah, <laughs> it becomes a challenge. Um, I'm trying to think, we, I don't know, is I want to do this in a very fair way and I want to make sure it's something people want. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought about like giving away, we have some things that are kind of stacking up. I'm like, what do I do with these? Like I, we have a retail uh, kind of, we don't actually do retail to so the general public. We have a, a physical location where people can stop by. Like mm-hmm. we have a, a storefront and uh, I thought, well, like, do we give them away? I don't know, but I don't want a crowd of people. If I say yes, everyone wants everything at once. So I got right. to come up with a happy way. So you're looking around going, what do you do with all this? Because first I give it away to all my friends. That's actually yeah. where a lot of it goes. Oh, that, that's that's where most of my stuff goes too. Yeah. Yeah. Staff gets first dibs. And then after that, they're like, I'm like, I don't know, do something with it. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's like stacking these things up. <laughs> yep. Um, yes. I think I've given all three of my co-hosts. So there's John, Stephen, Rhett, and they're, they're usually in your spot on the Talking Heads show. Um, I've given them all cases. I've given them all motherboards and processors. Um, I think I gave Rhett a video card. Um, I gave Steve a VR headset. <laughs> um, and so you can just, it's like, I don't need this stuff taking space in my garage. And if you can use it, please go use it. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I have more hardware than I know what to do with. But at the same time, I also keep a fair amount of hardware because I might want to revisit it in a year when the next model comes out or three years going, should you still use this graphics card? Or, hey, how's the CPU holding up today? Um, so people look at my shelf and go, you're not using 90% of your hardware. Right, but that's my business. That's I, I'm a reviewer. Just because I reviewed it once doesn't mean I'm not going to pull it back off the shelf and use it again. And I have to have it available so I can do another review. So, <laughs> Yep. Uh Sorry, I'm not gaming on it 24/7 or Bitcoin mining or whatever else. Yeah, is that a thing anymore? I think the value, value. It's not mining for them is not a thing anymore. It's either trading them or you got the ASIC miners that are eating up the last little bit of mining supply. Yeah, I think that finally kind of faded away into the in the mm-hmm. distance. So <laughs> until the next startup. Nice. Anyway, cars. Cars. Save the best for last. Yep. (laughs) All right. California muscle car. They did call it a muscle car, which um, angers, especially the Detroiters. That is not Uh, a happy statement by any of them. So what is your California muscle car? Yes. I I got the Tesla Model 3. Oh. Um, (laughs) I understand the anger now. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Oh, there's nothing like the look on someone's face who has clearly wrapped much more money into their classic car uh, with all their features. And then you come off the line and because of the police kind of turn that blind eye, as I say, right. um, to some of the illegal street racing and stuff like that, we just race from light to light. That's all we're really doing. Right. <laughs> um, that's the best place for a Tesla because they have all the torque at the low end. So from light right. to light. You always from zero off. to 70, you're, you're done. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So it's like that you jump off the line faster, you beat them to the next light, and they, they get angry. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they have more wrapped in their car than I paid for mine. And I admit, it's kind of cheating, but it's fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> Instant torque motors are cheating, man. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Instant torque motors are cheap. Um, so yeah, I, I am, I've never been a, an American muscle guy. Uh, uh, you know, especially, you know, I'm looking at Corvette Camaro, you know, Mustang. It's just not my thing. I, I, um, I like applying power in useful ways, not just zero to 60 in a straight line. And in America, thrives on the drag race that that's yes. that's all america seems to love is is i can go zero to 60 in six seconds or five seconds or four seconds or you know yep. whatever that number might be or you know i've, I've got a you know a, a nine second car or yeah. whatever else for me it's 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 circuit racing it's skill it's and i know there's skill in drag racing don't don't come after me don't at me on yeah. twitter i don't care um but for me i like more of the road racing circuit racing kind of stuff and so to me i've always leaned a lot more japanese i've leaned a lot more towards the suspension and torque and horsepower where you need it and proper application of power and thrust and and uh and and those specific use cases that and i love rally racing and so i, I love watching rally um so we have really we do have rally racing here in michigan um Ooh. So that is, I went to, I was uh, in January, I went to a rally race up in the northern part of Michigan here, uh-huh. so about three hours, four hours north of where I'm at. So yeah, no, uh, and I really like that um, aspect. Matter of fact, uh, one of my pseudo, someone I know, I can't call him like close friend, but uh, he's mm-hmm. building a Tesla, Tesla rally car for next year's race. And nice. which is kind of cool. Like he's cutting it up, different suspension and everything. He's cutting yeah. apart a Model 3 to build a rally car out of it, which I think is just awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Totally awesome. So yeah, I've I've had a number of sports cars over the years. I've had a uh, I've had a Toyota Celica, 1995 Toyota Celica, the model seventh uh, gen Celica, um, which was the GTS model. So it had the the 2.2 liter engine and upgraded suspension. It wasn't a GT4, although God, I'd I'd give something else for a GT4. Um, uh, I've had a Toyota MR2 Spider, which is the third gen Spider, the AW30. That's a cool car. Uh, that was a really fun car, but I'm six foot five, so I didn't fit in it all that well. <laughs> so I could drive it for about 20 minutes at a time before my back started hurting. Um, but it was fun. It, 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 um, if you ever want to know what a car should feel like, AW30, because it's about the cheapest way you can get into a mid-engine rear-wheel drive um, where it's proper 50-50 balance and just the right amount of torque and... You can take any corner at just about any speed and it will pull you through it. And and that was something else to get used to. Um, so that was a really fun car, but I traded that in and my current driver is, I have a 2004 350Z Roadster. Um, and once you go convertible, you never go back. And so I had the MR2 Spider, and I went, I, no, I need another silver Roadster if I'm gonna trade this in. And so I, I bought the 350Z, it had, pretty low miles on it. It only had 80,000 miles on it. Um, and uh, actually right now it is in the shop getting brand new suspension, exhaust, uh, all new brakes on all four corners and something else. Oh, brand new top. That's right. I'm putting a brand new top out on it after 16 years in the sun. Um, but uh, should that should have that back in a couple weeks, hopefully. But uh, yeah, that's my driver. 
So I, I've been happy that, um, you know, as much as dry racing is fun, that's where I see the gray haired people. So right. uh, as I call it, so, uh, like I'll go to a car show tomorrow. It's going to be more gray hairs, but on the weekends, when we do like Sunday fun days, as they call them here, um, those are all drifts and yeah. drifting with the, uh, all the different Dodge, like, you know, challengers and Hellcats. Oh yeah. Man, we have and burn rubber for days. Yeah. Oh man. And it's funny because uh, a couple of the people, they were laughing. Um, they, the best review, they uh, there's a Facebook review, is a video of um, one of the guys that's really into drifting, Wasim. And he's like, yeah, he goes, every two weeks, new set of tires. Every two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, you know, between sponsorships and things like that, they're fine with it. And it was just, right. they were laughing at, like, he just burns the rubber off the tires. Um, we have a, a pit um, that they've created called, I think it's called the Cloverdale pit. It's, this is not legal by the way. That's just what we call it. <laughs> this is, um, and it's some areas in Detroit where they got some buildings and they built, and I, I videoed it. If you flip through my Twitter, you'll find some posts on there. I mean, there's some really skilled, very skilled people doing, um, not just drifting pairs of cars at a time, drifting, coming at each other and passing only at an inch at a time with yeah. people hanging out of the passenger side, high fiving each other as they slid by. <laughs> <laughs> like it is so much fun to watch because look, I'm not asking that these guys crash, but if they do, I want to be there. <laughs> right. Like, can't help it. You're like, they're gonna, they're gonna hit. Uh, no, high five. Everyone tunes into the car race to see the crashes, not to see the results. Yeah. And so, yeah. It's like Fit, watching fits perfectly. Right. Right. You, you, you tune in for the fights, not for the three, two final. Yeah. So, uh, but the car, the car enthusiast stuff and it's, um, you know, it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of enthusiasts in there. Um, they've tried to make it safer. Um, so we have the outside the pit people and then the inside the pit people will all wear the same shirt that says, um, get back or get smacked. That's what it says. <laughs> and what they do is you try to high five the guy sliding by you and it's kind of like your own risk. That's why it's kind of illegal. Cause like these are just abandoned properties in Detroit and some of the right. um, less than affluent areas. We'll just say, yes, <laughs> where the police are like, I'm not going there either. Right. <laughs> You can call. We're not coming. Yeah, there, we already know everyone's doing something stupid there, and you chose to be there. <laughs> yes. No one lives there. You chose to be there. Have fun, guys. See, meanwhile, in Portland, there's no such thing as abandoned property. And in fact, that property is probably worth about $1.4 million. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's we kind don't, of we don't get any of that. It's only because um, I was on my motorcycle the other day and I posted a picture of some artwork I'd, I'd seen a lot yeah, of yeah. graffiti art. And uh, it's funny as I looked at the, I was looking at the picture, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. That is only literally because I, I filled up at a gas station by my office on my motorcycle and I drove 13 miles to get there. Uh -huh. That's it. And it's like, yeah. it's so close. And it's just like, it's really weird because we have, like you said, where I live directly, there's no property like that. But right. 13 miles north of here, yeah, there's no man's land. Right. <laughs> Yeah. We do have an annual Mad Max meetup they do there with all the Mad Max cars too, which is kind of cool. Yeah. You can look up a bus called the Caddy Wampus, and it's a it's a spectacularly made bus that has a bunch of um crazy people that ride around in it. So it's from Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> it's and it's got it's not like cats all drawn on the bus. It's like in a wow. you know school bus and it says Caddy Wampus. <laughs> you can Google cool. some of this. There's there's a lot of crazy stuff here. 
Yeah, the closest thing we come around here is the tour buses that will take you around to the 30 different breweries within driving distance. Um, so so we have, uh, uh, I mean, Those are from, cool. my, yeah, fr- from my house, I probably live, I'd say almost within walking distance of about 20, um, where it's like comfortably I could walk there in an afternoon and, you know, spend the day just drinking and then walk back home. Um, it's part of the reason I moved to this area. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's about as close as we come to, to that kind of thing is you, you see the, the craft beer tour buses going around all the time. Um, for people wondering, I, I just dropped in there, uh, type in Vice Detroit Sunday Fun Day and you can watch a 13-minute YouTube video on the insanity. And yes, that legit happens in Detroit. That is every <laughs> Sunday that goes on. And that's Saturday. Not- and That's not fair. All we have is the naked bike race, man. Yeah. You're, you're... Oh, yeah. We used to have the naked. I don't know if we still have it anymore. We used to have um, Ann Arbor. So Detroit, um, you know, a lot of people know where the Motor City is. We're from Michigan. We point our hand. Right. <laughs> but uh, uh, about 30 miles west of here is Ann Arbor, which is a college town. We used to have the naked mile, as they called it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Where every, all the new college people would just completely um, get nude and run a mile down to the, to the new college campus, which I, I never knew why they did that. They did it for a long time. It was always a puzzling thing. <laughs> yeah, didn't mean I, did. I went and seen it because I want. I was like, well, this is interesting. <laughs> when in Rome, right? And everybody's running. <laughs> yep. Yeah, Portland has the annual naked bike ride, uh, naked okay. bike rally. I think is what they call it, and they they ride twenty miles through downtown. They ride from east side to west side. Um, so that's been an interesting thing to partake when you didn't know the event was going on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, driving. everyone's uh, unclothed and riding yeah. a bicycle. Well, there's a lot of bikes there. Wow, there's a lot of bikes there, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the reaction you get on the roadway. They're only uh, wearing bicycles. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we have our, our weird things. You know, we've got the, the Unipiper. I don't know if you've seen the YouTube videos of the Unipiper. Uh, we have the... Uh, uh, he rides a unicycle playing a, a, uh, a pipe it. organ or yeah. Yep. Wearing a Darth Vader costume. Yeah. That's great. That that's, I just know that's yep. an, that's, that's like on your side of the country. That's oh, like, your, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You guys that's, own that. You're like, that's our guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> not, not only do we own him, we, we like, you know, we respect him and, and, you know, we buy him pints at the bar. I I've bought him a pint before. Oh, nice. Fact, so he, he does it for the free beer. <laughs> yes. Oh, he absolutely does. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's at every craft brewery opening in Oregon. You, you know, yeah, he's, he's a, he's a lot of fun. Uh, he did a COVID special Unipiper where he was uh, riding around in a hazmat suit. And instead of a flamethrower, he had Lysol spraying out the, the bagpipes. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> uh, that's great. Keeps the theme going, you know, change it yes. up once in a while. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's about 10.05 local time. So it's about 1 a.m. your time. Yep. Um, we'll give it about another five or so minutes. Does anyone have any like specific questions for me or Tom while we're on? Because, uh, uh, you know, we usually go about 10 minutes late here. So the floor is open for the last five or 10-ish minutes of the show. I don't want to keep you up too late. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, good thing is my boss won't be mad if I don't come to work on time. Mine either. <laughs> god i've waited so long to say that (laughs) i know we don't open till um officially we uh open at 10 a.m so okay that's not too bad then see see my 
my my old start time was if I was on call, it was six a.m. And if I was not on call, it was seven thirty. And so I've I've had you know the last decade and a half of like every single day I'm I'm awake at seven o'clock. You know. Yep. Uh, someone so. asked if we have college degrees. I can answer that I do not have them, but I started my tech career in 1995. So yeah. there also wasn't many options for college degrees in 95 related to tech. Not yeah. not the way they are now. Uh, I do not have a college degree, and I started my my technical career in 2002 uh, with uh, with some private contracts, and then uh, the career that I just left, I started in 2007. And so I've, I've been in the same job for a very long time and, and I've been in the industry for almost 20 years. Um, so, but yeah, at, at the same time, you could take a programming you know, degree, you could take programming, programming specific, but there was no IT career paths. There was no anything like that. In fact, I went to college to be a, a band teacher. I was gonna be a, a, I was a music ed major when I started, so. Yeah, and uh, one of the things I always be, I always be clear, I try to be clear about is I never try to romanticize like, oh, I didn't go to college, so you shouldn't either. Um, I don't think there's a college singular, does great things. And yeah, don't I don't think there's a singular career path that will is a guaranteed work. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not one of those people. Even though I have found good success without going to college, I don't poo-poo on everyone who wants to go to college. It's like no, Correct. that may be the right choice. And right. by the way, something I will never say is, oh, I don't care if that guy about to perform surgery has a doctorate or not, <laughs> especially when it's me. I there are right. times when I think college is extremely relevant. Yes, <laughs> lawyers, doctors. Yes, kind of go down that list. Like the people I want, like defending my career, livelihood, or life. I want them to have eight to 10 years in college and I, and I will pay them every darn bit of that $300,000 student loan they took out. Absolutely. And then it's a sliding scale depending on, you know, what your profession is. There are some professions that absolutely need to have a a college degree. Um, There are other professions that you'd get more just joining the field and working your way up than you would from a college education. Um, IT in some regards, can be one of them, but IT is such a diverse field. I'm I'm a hardware and network guy. Uh, you know, I work on servers and networking. You know, day in and day out, and that is such a dynamically evolving field. You'd be better off just starting to learn about it and getting an entry level job than you would spending four years in college. At the same time, from a programming standpoint. If you're going to program games for a living, maybe you don't need a degree. Maybe you start out with with a basic language and you learn as you go. For professional development, absolutely, you need a degree. You need to learn how to read a Gantt chart. You need to learn how to how to you know program with your peers and every, everything else that goes along with that. And that's what college will teach you. Um, so the blanket statement of you don't need a college degree or you do need a college degree, it's such a sliding scale inside of technology. Yeah, it's. It is challenging and um, there's actually, so on my channel, if you look for like getting started in cybersecurity specifically, uh, you'll find an interview with a person who became famous for hacking planes and um, (laughs) Xavier and um, uh, Chris Roberts, also known as I believe Dragon online. And he's a popular speaker at DEF CON. He's, you know, infamous in the cybersecurity world. Um, He talks about how to hack your way into the HR and how to bypass getting a resume. So there's different paths you may take. Um, it, it's just like thing. There's not a single path, but there's uh, what works for you is really best. So like I said, I give a broad answer on that because um, I encourage more and more people that should get, I think more, we need more people in tech. We need more people in cybersecurity. Yes. Um, but I can't definitively say every time like 
colleges or isn't for you. And also uh, Chris Roberts' recommendation on how to get around HR is fun. Because I'm also someone <laughs> who's also hacked the system from an early age of going in and knocking on doors. I actually, the last resume I filled out was 1995, the very like last time I filled out a resume. After that, I've literally just had jobs because of people that knew me, because of being in the field and uh, yep. people saying, well, come over here and come over here work. And that led to some of the corporate um, jobs that were, you know, six figure jobs I had that were literally no resume. Like someone knew me and hired me. So, right, right. <laughs> like I filled out some paperwork to be on the payroll, but didn't ever have to submit a resume. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, I've only really ever had one official resume and that's the one that landed me my job that I carried for almost 14 years. Um, yeah. and, uh, and that was at a time that I was looking to get in, get back into the tech industry because I had been doing a lot of freelance stuff between 2002 and 2007. And, uh, and I went, you know, uh, and actually at the time in 2007, I was working for Coca-Cola. I, I was, you know, facing shelves in grocery stores for Coca-Cola. And I went, I need to get a full-time job in tech if I want to make anything of what I want to do for a living. Yeah. And and so I started really, really hammering it and sending out a lot of different resumes. And literally the first one I, I sent out panned out into what would become a, a decade and a half long career. <laughs> so Which is way better. So than I'm that. so I'm the exception, not the norm. Don't take advice from me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm also now working full time on YouTube. Don't take advice from me. <laughs> oh yeah, and that's a whole different animal too to <laughs> right. get into the content creation side of it. There's no, there's no career path because this is not something colleges teach you how to become as a content creator in the norm. And right. uh, that's actually touched upon by KBHD in that ethics video where he's like, this wasn't, you know, he studied business uh, specifically. I believe he has an yeah. MBA. Yeah, um, and he did not study how to become a content creator YouTuber because this wasn't like a college checkbox. So. Right. Right. Um, I mean, like I said, I went to college for music education. I was going to be a band teacher for a living. The only reason I stopped pursuing that is I, about a year and a half into college, I started thinking back to all the band teachers that I'd had and how they had all had that same position for 40 years, meaning there are zero openings in my area. Yep. <laughs> So, My sister uh, so, that too. so, so of teacher. all the, so of the 70 <laughs> colleagues that I had in the music education program at the time, uh, probably two of them would ever be hired. <laughs> yeah. It, those are challenging. Um, I, I do have a friend who completely works in a different career, but he's got a degree in, um, uh, philosophy and, politics uh poly, so he's a policy philosopher i'm like poli sci philosopher and i'm like yeah you you have a hopeless career path so he completely works in a different industry what one of my networking guys has a religious studies degree yeah <laughs> it's not an easy job to get into. <laughs> right exactly so so yeah uh you kind of got to carve your own path uh someone had a great question about uh home lab starter servers um and and that's kind of that's actually one of the topics that I had on here that didn't make the final cut, but I think that's kind of what we'll leave with is uh, it's a good one. Yeah, um, how do you get started with Home Lab, and should you buy you know refurbished enterprise gear? Should you build your own? Should you do whatever else? So the first thing is watch the beginning of this show where we argued about Proxmox or XCP and G. So um, whatever hardware you're going to use will run one of those things there. Yep. Uh, but there's a lot of great deals. Uh, you know, you can find deals between eBay if you're lucky and you live in a more um, 
urban area, you might find some deals on Craigslist or Facebook. 30 miles from the Intel campus, you know. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> things happen a, to fall through the cracks here. It just happens. Fact, keep an eye out. If, you, if you're looking online, um, look at uh, Uni Unix Surplus is a good seller for um, a lot of super micro poles. Yeah. Um, they refurbish and format all the super micro poles that come out of data centers. You can buy servers for a few thousand dollars um, and I made that's on the high side of it, but when I say a few thousand dollars, you're talking like, you know, 30 or 40 terabytes of storage with 128 gigs of RAM. If you spend maybe four or $500, you're still talking about a pretty reasonable uh, one use server that is, you know, still not, not, I mean, end of life as far as the data center is concerned, but plenty of life in terms of building your home right. lab and being able right. to build an entire virtualization stack to run a lot of, um, you know, lab uh, type VMs, build out a bunch of Linux VMs, run Hyper-B right. on it if you want, if you want, if you're mm -hmm. taking a Microsoft path, run ESX if you're taking an ESX path. Because people say, hey, I really plan to be an ESX I admin, I want to go into VMware, and I'm like, then run VMware, don't run right. XCPG. Like, right. if, that's, if you found a job somewhere that pay, that's going to pay you to do that, you kind of need to train on the software you're going to go into. Yeah. And so that type of hardware is uh, pretty you know, pretty uh, available more so than it ever was. I mean, I was, I was thinking back uh, earlier because someone asked me to put together like my entire career and I started outlining all of it. And I'm like, holy crap. I used to dumpster die with my friend Mike in 1993 to acquire <laughs> hardware. We had a list of places we'd hit because they would just set it out back. Yep. <laughs> uh, I got my first couple of servers doing that where, yeah. where, they weren't even wiped either. They they would boot up to whatever proprietary Unix OS was on them, yep. and and I I'd, I'd wipe them and and install whatever else. And um, that was actually one of my first FreeNAS servers. Is I found an old Pentium three one U box with two three and a half inch hard drive trays in it, and uh, and fired that up and installed FreeNAS and got an SMB server on it, and went well this is stupid and then installed Windows. But it was it was literally a dumpster style one U server that I found. Um, up in Beaverton. Yeah. Me and my friend Mike, man, we dug so much stuff out of, um, it's funny because the company actually is still around that uh, used to do it. They're, they were a tech company and they're still a tech company and is somewhat of a competitor of mine because they're in the same area in Detroit here and they've been around since the 80s and they used to just throw everything out in the dumpster. Me and Mike used mm -hmm. to be like, hey man, it was literally like two miles from my house. We just check it almost every day. We'd stop by there just to see if they put <laughs> one hard drive in there that we could take. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. No. When when uh, when people say dumpster diving, it it really is a lost art, but it really is something we did. <laughs> oh yeah. We used to do it for the. Uh, it wasn't really hacking. I guess it was. I was part of the twenty six hundred club and uh, the meetups and everything else back in the nineties, uh -huh. and uh, we were doing it to to pull. Uh, we pulled a bunch of four millimeter tapes because they would throw them out when they were done with them, and then yeah. we'd go re-extract the data because this is no one ever encrypted any of the backups, so we would just no, 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 just no. like we found all these engineering files. I I didn't know what to do with them. I always thought it was cool we had them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I I found so much stuff that was probably insider information or proprietary blueprints or anything else from you know pulling hard drives from from servers that. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd do a contract for, for an odd company and they'd go, oh, we want to upgrade our hard drive space. And so I'd go and upgrade four hard drives and I'd say, what are you doing with these? I said, we're not doing anything. You want them? Yeah, I'll dispose of them for you. Not a problem. Yeah. And and all of a sudden, as, you know, a 20-year-old kid in the early 2000s, I'm going, all of a sudden, I've got a couple two terabyte hard drives. These are like 
400 bucks a piece if I go out and buy them right now. Yeah. This is kind of fun to have. Right. Um, so my, uh, uh, I've been on the Xeon kick for a very long time. Um, my first dual Xeon system or dual processor system, we'll say that, was a dual slot one Pentium 2 450 megahertz that I got because my dad had pulled it from a medical uh, office somewhere and they said, we don't need this system anymore. And so it was this old Dell precision desktop workstation thing. Um, but that was like in 2001. So it was still pretty relevant hardware and could still be upgraded to, you know, 1.1 gigahertz Pentium 3 dual slot ones if you wanted. Uh, but I rocked that for a little while. And then uh, I mentioned living in the, the shadows of the Intel campus. In 2007, I bought a dual 604 socket Xeon system that was essentially their prototypes for the Pentium Ds, for the Pentium D generation Xeons. They were dual core four thread um, and their engineering samples. And I think they were only clocked at 1.6, but the board could actually run them up to like 2.8. And I paid a guy $200 for the board RAM and processors. And that was back when a Core 2 Duo cost like 350 bucks. And all of a sudden I've, I was rocking four cores, eight threads with eight gigabytes of RAM. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I've been on that Xeon bandwagon for a long time. Ah, all the reminiscing and all the old tech. Yes. So, um, yeah, before we wind this on, I will mention, uh, we've talked about, and because uh, he's older than me, Michael Lucas, who's, you may or may not have read some of his books he's wrote on tech, which include like SSH and ZFS. He's covered a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, we've done uh, panels because we've gone to Linux conferences together. And we've talked about like reminiscing about old hardware and things like that. Mm -hmm. I might have, I've had on my channel about his books, but I might have him on a channel again sometime uh, reminiscing about that because he is, I think he's about 10 years on me and he did some really fun and interesting stuff in technology. Mm -hmm. And he's also been a writer for so long. So it, it is kind of cool walking back and when he starts talking about it, he's very articulate. He's a book writer, of course, so he's really wordy. Um, but it's also fun to hear, um, think about all those our hardware. Because like, yeah. I, I'm not someone who looks back with nostalgia, like I wish it was still like this. I think it's fascinating. Um, an 8-bit guy brings that to life really well on his YouTube yes. channel. Yeah, it's like a guilty pleasure to watch it because I think it's so cool because like, hey, I had a Commodore. Hey, I had a TRS-80. And right. seeing where we were, how we've gotten here, and all the functionality uh, changes over time. It's not yeah. much about like, I never wish it was like that before, but it's cool that I was there when it was like that. Right. So, um, I'm actually going to be doing a couple retro videos here probably in the next month. I actually oh, went awesome. out and I actually went out and bought a Pentium 1 200 megahertz MMX. Uh, so I'm going to be doing one of those builds, but doing like modern style benchmarks with it. Um, and uh, so period correct with modern features is kind of the, the goal of it. Um, I'm also going to be doing videos on both of my dual Xeon systems because I still have that dual slot one and I still have that dual 604 motherboard. Oh, neat. Uh, so I actually bought video cards for both of those because I, I had sold everything but the motherboards. It's like I couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to sell those boards because they mean something to me. Yeah. And uh, and so I've had them for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years almost. And I went, I want to, I'm sure I'll do something with them eventually. 
And uh, so I sold the CPU, still had that. I, I needed to buy memory for one of them, so I bought some RAM. But uh, I'm gonna be doing uh, like my first dual processor systems. I'm gonna do a rebuild on those and kind of do a couple of features on it. Um, and I'm also gonna do one video on kind of the uh, LGR or Phil's hardware or, or uh, Phil's computer lab uh, doing the, the thin client turned into a retro gaming PC. You know, should you go out and buy like a Pentium one system or should you buy a thin client for 20 bucks and achieve the same goal? And so I'm gonna try to take that angle at it. So it should be fun. It, it, it's something that's kind of near and dear to my heart and something that I haven't toyed with for 20 years. Yeah. In, in anytime you watch, uh, anytime I watch 8-Bit Guy get inspired, I'm like, oh, yeah. that looks fun. Yeah. Especially I, the old Commodore stuff. I'm like, I was a TRS-80 person, but I also play with a lot of Commodores. And it was like, oh, yeah. those were just kind of, you really had to push the limits on those. Yeah. Um, see, I, I came up in the 386 times. So. Yeah. So you the, the little bit of a generation. Uh, yeah. It was kind of fun. So one of the things I had a few years back, I got to meet and interview uh, Jeffrey Snover. And if you're not familiar Ooh, with the name. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jeffrey Snover. He created PowerShell. Uh, mm -hmm. His boss, you might've heard his name, Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft. Nadella. So he, yep. Exactly. And me and him actually still tweet back and forth. He's a very interesting person. Um, but one of the things we reminisced about was he also wrote software on TRS-80s. And we actually, before the interview, because we had time of, we were hanging out um, before they brought us up on stage where I actually was on stage at a Microsoft event doing part of the interview with them. Mm -hmm. um, but anyways, we, we were talking about how you had to use peak and poke to use memory addresses and to create functionality um, in TRS-80s. And I'm like, oh yeah, I used to write all this. And he's kind of looking at me, he goes, you're a little younger than me. And I'm like, I know I was pretty young when I learned peak and poke, but it was really fun because you literally manipulated things at the memory address levels to yeah. make functionality work because there wasn't enough, the, the basic software it had wasn't advanced enough. So you went, but it did have the ability to poke into memory addresses so you'd use peak to read and peak at the memory addresses and poke to rewrite new memory addresses based on uh, code you wrote. To, to change the function of what whatever you wanted it to do, right? Yeah, so we could create the functions and we just rewrite the functions in the math essentially that, uh, oh, the algorithms that would uh, control that. So it was... <laughs> yep, uh, yeah, my, uh, my very first PCs were a 386, 25 megahertz and I had a Macintosh LC2, so I'm, the first computer that I could call my own was a Macintosh LC2. Um, and so I, I came up learning a little bit of that um, and, and poking around at that and breaking it much to my, my parents' chagrin. <laughs> there, yeah, I also, um, because it, it's a weird thing. If you go on Jeffrey Snover's Twitter, one, he's an uh, interesting person if you follow him on Twitter, but um, something trivia about him is his wedding anniversary came up. And his wedding anniversary is rather significant. Um, he happened to be a tall white guy standing around in China in Tiananmen Square on a particular day. Really? <laughs> that was his wedding anniversary. And he posted all the photos he had on there. And wow. because he was a tech wearing cargo shorts, he looked kind of military fatigue. And he's got an entire story he put together about his wedding anniversary. And, and, the, and the crowd kind of looks like this. Yeah, there's this one tall dude. This one tall dude right in the middle of the crowd. Yeah, he's like, how did I know choosing my wedding anniversary to be in China at a time when there wasn't any turmoil when he booked the date, but there happened to be a really big incident that day. And he was right. there for that whole thing. So wow. that was like so crazy. He tweeted all the pictures he has of it. I was like, that's 
interesting that That's insane. he's still married to the same woman. Um, yeah, he's a, he's an interesting person just to follow him on yeah. Twitter. He's uh, he, wicked smart. Um, he he holds the uh, he's a distinguished engineer not once but twice. He was uh, he worked for IBM and designed storage servers. And when he worked for Microsoft, uh, PowerShell won. PowerShell, his, yeah. His that's where that's where I know the name from. Is PowerShell. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, and it's funny because he's he's not like he gives me hope because he's older than me and still creating amazing things. Like he's not retired. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a long career ahead of us. But I guess we should I should wind this down. It is uh, one twenty-five a.m. here in Detroit time, Eastern. Exactly. Saturday. Yep, I was I was about ready to do that. So uh, thank you guys so much so much for joining us, and thank you Tom so much for uh, for staying up so late and uh, and joining me on tonight. the show. And we'll figure out we'll reverse this and we'll bring you on mine, and um, it, you just got to wake up earlier. <laughs> I've got all the time in the world at this point, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to stay up later. You may get a little earlier. We'll figure it out. Well, that, we'll get that scheduled and I'll bring everyone around. So thank you for everyone who joined us. It was awesome seeing all of you here. Make sure X is on the show too because I want to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway all right. thank you all Here. so much for joining us and staying up so late with us this has been a great show this has been episode 141 of talking heads here on craft computing make sure to click like if you like this video subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so already i do have also links down to tom's uh channel and twitter down in the video description make sure to give him some love as well uh as always this has been a heck of a lot of fun and uh we'll see you next week and i'm going to sleep <laughs> <laughs> Night, Tom. Later. <laughs> <laughs>